How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Right before I hit record, Todd said, I done it. And I never thought I would hear that. Although I will say this one common phrase that my wife is used to me I'll, I'll explain this interesting what movie is that again it's the morgan freeman dream and catcher the, dream catcher, yeah, dream catcher. King. who is that guy that was on flight of the concourse that always like uh dimitri dimitri martin dimitri martin yeah yeah or he always had the one bit dream catchers really work if your dream is to be gay <laughs> 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 uh, but anyway that aside i done it uh, I, I would never think that that would make it anywhere because that movie is terrible. Yeah, I that's an awful movie. <laughs> it's a bad movie based on one of Stephen King's worst books. <laughs> so, but I legitimately sometimes at the house when I drop something or do something, I will say, fuck me, Freddy. And that is what Jason, <laughs> Lee, Jason says. Lee. Yeah, yeah. Movie, he says, fuck me, Freddy. All he the gets time. attacked by shit weasels in that movie, if I remember correctly. It does. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll take it one step weirder is that sometimes the wife and I, we have like phrases that we say that uh, maybe you guys do this too. where like only you guys would understand them because yeah. they're just yeah. built on other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that fuck me, Freddie has evolved immensely. Like it's gone to like, fuck me, Freddie. And I think at one time I said in the butthole and then, <laughs> and then it was like, I wanted to rhyme it. So then it became fuck me, Freddie in the butthole, Eddie. And then it became Eddie <laughs> Kingston, like the wrestler. <laughs> so, like now, oh. I would just walk through the house and go, fuck me, Freddie in the butthole, Eddie Kingston. Wow, that is a long <laughs> phrase. <to> just... <laughs> so now you know that. Mm, wow. That's a, a thing that only Jennifer would know until now. now and now we know. Knows. Now we know. Yeah. <laughs> and we're better for it. Ooh, I I, so. I, I'll, I've got a weird one too. And to be honest, I have Justin Bishop to thank for it. Oh no. Because he introduced me to the cartoon Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Yeah. And I think it's in that first season where uh, two of the characters uh, are, you know, having a back and forth. Uh, one of them tries to steal the, the crest on Birdman's helmet and everything and finally gets it and says, how do I look? And uh, of course I asked my wife, how do I look? She asked me, how does she look? The whole thing. So the response in the cartoon is, you look very powerful. You look like a winner. You look very important, dynamic, and very unstoppable. And also, you look very powerful. So (laughs) whenever either of us asks, how do we look? That is the first response in its entirety. That's too much. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this intro to the show is honestly too much because it's already going to be a very long episode. So right, why don't we right. get into it? Yeah. All right, we'll just fine. Start. We'll just start talking about it. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast, despite how the intro sounds, that explores the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. But maybe Dreamcatcher is one of your favorite cult and or genre films. Sorry. 
<laughs> you, should, you should see more. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. And I am one of your hosts, and my name is Gary Ord. And I am your other host, Justin Bishop. Wait, film historian Justin Bishop. I forgot that's my new title as bestowed yeah. upon me by... Mr. Todd A. Davis. Yeah, that's right. And I am always ready to party down. Writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Wait, I feel like I've done this before. Like it's a sequel, but not. Uh, you do this every episode. Yeah, yeah. I got to I got to lay off the booze. Anyway, thank you for deciding to join us. See, see that felt familiar. Like the join us joke. <sighs> Whatever. Our third episode of our series covering the work of Mr. Sam Raimi titled Sam Raimi, the Entertainer. After the critical and commercial failure of Crime Wave, Sam Raimi, Robert Tapert, and Bruce Campbell embarked on a sequel to their first film, The Evil Dead, at the insistence of their publicist, Irvin Shapiro. With the help of Dino De Laurentiis and, believe it or not, Stephen King, Raimi was granted a larger budget than he'd had on the first film, uh, and a larger budget, in fact, than even his quote-unquote Hollywood debut, Crime Wave. The resulting film is considered one of the greatest horror sequels of all time. I mean, honestly, maybe one of the greatest sequels of all time. And it is, in my opinion, at least, the distillation of all of Raimi's influences and his strengths as a filmmaker. Uh, we are talking, of course, about Evil Dead 2. Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening, something so deadly, something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the theater of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2. Swallow your soul! Evil Dead 2. Dead by dawn. As we do with each episode, we hold nothing back. That means spoilers are inbound. So if you're thinking, how do I stop it? It's the little button on your player that looks like two lines going up and down, like a Roman numeral two, which in film would usually indicate a sequel, which this is, but it isn't. Or is it? This is a good point for everything Sam Raimi, I think. And I think we're going to talk about that a lot. Just how this is like where everything that Sam Raimi is comes together. And I just, mm, uh, yeah. just wanted to mention that just because I really learned, I feel like I finally learned a lot more about Sam Raimi. Not like I got into like all his deep personal details. Cause I don't know where you can find all of that. I'm not sure much about the guy. Yeah. Uh, there aren't any like comprehensive Sam Raimi like biographies out there hopefully mm -hmm. one day he'll write an autobiography or something but yeah i was uh there was one of the guys on one of the documentaries um i want to say it was like you know it wasn't taper or whoever but it was it was one of those guys that were saying like i've known the guy 30 years oh it was dan hicks the the guy who, who's in this movie but uh he he was saying he's like i've known i've known him for 30 years and i still don't think i've got a handle on sam raimi like as far <laughs> as who he is personally <laughs> But it's just funny, like seeing I loved this because you can find all the backstage stuff for Evil Dead and you can just really see how he acts at the back. And even Bruce talks about is like when he's on set, he he doesn't remember your name. Yeah, it's he like champ not, or sport. Yeah, or... it's champ, sport, buddy, pal, <laughs> friend. <laughs> it's like and uh, 
So it, it's just fun to see all of that stuff. And uh, but I also think this is a good one that you're going to learn that he also has a very business side too. Like he gets oh, yeah. he gets down to business. I think that's part of his uh famous suit thing that he's going to develop too. I, I well, saw him suit, in a bunch of backstage stuff. In, yeah, in wearing a, a suit. Guy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually a, a Hitchcock reference. Like that that's uh, something that Hitchcock would always do. Uh, Hitchcock nice. always directed in a full suit and tie, and Raimi started doing that. Not necessarily as an homage to Hitchcock, but more of like a respect thing. Like he he respects the position enough to where he gets up and gets dressed for it every day, just like you would at any other job, you know? Yeah. Uh, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's funny. Like um, one of the actresses uh, mentioned him being very much Hitchcock. They were a big fan of Hitchcock and they were like, he comes in and he's like the sweetest guy and he's nice, but like he he knows like every single shot immediately mm -hmm. so i always think of these things in comparison to guys like you know like james cameron and stuff but mm -hmm. we're gonna see uh sam has to get assertive in this filming process but um he's usually like a really nice guy but they said like he knows he knows every single shot every angle every single thing like he has it all there even when he gets into editing they're like he already yeah. edited the movie in his brain like he already knows what that's gonna be like and so they they were comparing him uh, to Hitchcock. And and another thing he said, they reminded me of uh, something Bruce Campbell said in one of the interviews I watched where he said, it's weird because on set, Sam is playing the part of a director directing a movie like yeah. every single time. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, he's like, so even the Sam, he was like, the Sam I know is not necessarily exactly that Sam on set because he's just like, he'll just walk in and he's just like, all right, everybody, places, everyone. We've got a big show to do today. A big scene <laughs> coming up. Going to be a lot of work in getting your spots. That's kind of like what James Cameron did. You know, like he played like the part of this hard ass director when people who know him in real life, you know, said that he's not like that. He's he's a Jim the guy. Remember we talked about that. Uh, they're <laughs> just playing very different directors uh, on set. <laughs> yeah, know? Uh, it's it's pretty fun. And you you mentioned that you know he's got every shot already in his head. This is the movie, and we might talk about this, uh, I, I'm not sure, but uh, this is the movie where he learned that he had to storyboard in order to convey those shots to everyone else on the crew that needed to know what we're going to do today. Like, you can't yeah. just have it in your head because you've got 50 other people on set working to make this happen. Yeah, that that actual, that that point, yeah, it was um, uh, the buddy that uh, that was like first AD on Evil Dead they had talked about uh, it was Josh Becker's his name. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah he, he had said that, you know, Sam had come over to his house at one point and sat down with him and brought a bottle of scotch. And like, they had a whole conversation just about production, like mm -hmm. how, how to not make everything miserable. For, like, and, the last uh, two movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, Becker says he remembers telling Sam, like, you got to start using storyboards and stuff like that. And, uh, and so he's like, cause, other people need to know what's going on in your brain beside yep. yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, he says, you need storyboards. You need like, uh, like a, you know, a scene list or something, you know, like something people can go off of to know when they're supposed to be there. And so he's, they say, if you find a storyboards and you can find pictures of them and stuff, they're hilarious. Like they're, they're pretty bad like stick figures. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and like Howard Berger, I think at one point has one. He's like, he's like, I'll give you an example. And he draws one. And uh, holds it up, and it's like a stick figure with a giant hand. And he's like, "You see this?" And they're and like Nicotero's there. He's like, "That's better than Sam's." <laughs> like, he's, like, he's like, "You see that hand?" He's like, "If you're wondering what that is, that's the evil hand." 
He's mm. like, because we'd go there and we we're like, what? <laughs> what are we doing? And he's like, that's the evil hand. You got to look at that hand. See how it's big? It's evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, the concept of a sequel to The Evil Dead goes all the way back to the filming of that first movie. Uh, his idea, uh, according to uh, Tim Filo, remember he was the cinematographer on The Evil Dead. Raimi's idea was, uh, oh, after Evil Dead 1, Bruce goes back to the year 1300 to fight Deadites. That was it. That was the idea. That was kind of as far as they got, at least during the filming of that first film. Well, turns out Irvin Shapiro loved the idea of Ash going back in time to fight Deadites. And in May of 1984, so this is just a year after Evil Dead was, was released, he took out ads in trade magazines to promote the project which, you know, there was no script or anything for yet. Uh, but at, he was promoting it at various times under the names Evil Dead and the Army of Darkness or Evil Dead 2 colon Evil Dead and the Army of Darkness, which is a fucking mouthful, uh, or simply the Medieval Dead. You know, that might work if they do a, a third one or something. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, this is what I I was glad that that we found this because I, I remember mentioning this and it was confusing in, in the first Evil Dead episode that, uh, we talked about it briefly that Shapiro was like such a mentor to them. And he was the one that like had the foresight to like, all right, let's go ahead and make some stuff for sequels and get it out there and get people talking. And um, even before they'd fleshed anything out. So I just thought that was a cool callback to that. Well, after both Universal and 20th Century Fox passed on the sequel, Raimi shelved it in favor of Crime Wave. And well, we all know how that went. <laughs> But after Crime Wave's failure, Shapiro encouraged Raimi to return to the idea of an Evil Dead sequel, uh, and Raimi took him up on it, knowing that another flop would stall their already hurting careers. Remember, Sam's not gung-ho about a horror movie, and neither are Tapper and Campbell, really. According to Campbell, once the original one was out, we were on to the next. We weren't horror geeks. It was yeah. just a way to get our foot in the door. And so, plus... That Evil Dead shoot had been, like we said before, mildly miserable. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and then they also had this like period between like eighty one and eighty three where they talk about they just had to sit around with their thumbs up their butt, just like waiting, you know, waiting for the in. movie to come out. Yeah, <laughs> it's like kicking ideas around. And so when the opportunity for Crime Wave comes up, they jump on that. That goes south. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were talking about you know you, Crime Wave. They go from like a two point five million dollar budget, it runs it up to like four million and huge cost overrun and and bruce is talking about it, and that's the kind of stuff that gets you fired permanently mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to work with Go to director's jail <laughs> yeah so they were just kind of feeling like everything was just kind of a bummer and they weren't sure what to do so everybody just kind of went on the page of all right i guess it is time to go back to evil dead uh but sam was apparently according to all the stories i can find it was the last one like he was or at least with directing like that he was not this is from Bruce Campbell and Rob Tapper. Uh, like Sam was going to help executive produce the movie. And yeah. uh, he had hired, they hired Scott Spiegel and that old second unit guy, uh, Josh Becker to come in and work on something. Hmm. Uh, but according to Becker, he wrote a treatment for what it would be. And everyone and, hated it. And everybody hated it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like when Todd rewrites, rewrites Justin's notes. And yeah. then we have to, <laughs> Justin has to say no Todd. No, these are my babies. <laughs> Cut it out. Slap his hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because we've seen this before where a director tries to get their foot in the door by making a horror movie because one, you can make them for cheap. Two, they're a easy sell. 
audiences are going to eat them up, whether they're good or bad. And it really, it helps when they're good, but they don't have to be. Uh, I mean, we saw this with George Romero, uh, most notably, I think, uh, where he had no intention of, of being a horror filmmaker. Uh, but Romero kind of got stuck in that world. I mean, other than a couple of Night Riders, I think most notably is probably the exception, but almost his entire filmography is horror. Uh, Wes Craven, we haven't done a Wes Craven series, but it happened to Wes Craven as well. He had no intention of being a horror filmmaker, but he kind of got stuck in that shoebox as well. But Raimi actually will escape it. Uh, You know, even when we talk about the third movie in this series in a couple of weeks, I hesitate to call it a horror movie at all. Uh, Army of Darkness is a comedy with horror elements. But other Mm. than that, I mean, and Drag Me to Hell, when he returns to horror years on down the line, the rest of his filmography is not horror. I mean, he's still very much influenced by it, but he didn't get stuck in that, even though by making a sequel to the horror movie that put you on the map, you're, you're definitely in danger of being shoehorned into that specific genre it's so funny to think about like these guys that don't mean to do it and then they end up there uh like the ones you just mentioned another one i'm thinking of is i've really realized with sam raimi like uh the thing i always notice with like john carpenter like mm-hmm. that he's he's the horror master but he's uh you know that wasn't the intention he's always wanted to do, do a damn western and, westerns uh, and, and sci-fi movies that's what he would be doing <laughs> forever yeah. if he if he had his way sam well, raimi just wants to do the three stooges yeah yeah nobody lets him do the three stooges i know the goddamn ferrelli brothers took it over and <laughs> ruined it i even saw uh one thing that that the gag with the uh eyeball flyball uh mm-hmm. that is a stooges gag not yep. with an eyeball but with no. like grapes or something but i just thought that was funny i was like oh he got one in there like just straight up but it's like, kind of you know uh to to look at that idea of getting stuck in that rut you know to look at that concept in reverse it's kind of like chris nolan taking over the batman movies which we've covered here you know he didn't approach him as a comic book movie he just set out to make a good movie it just happened to be batman begins and you know and the rest but um yeah i don't don't know that anybody would really i i don't know that he set out to be the comic book movie guy well, and he, like well he never ended up being the comic book movie guy either. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> he, I, I don't know. Yeah. He, he very specifically curated his career to where he was putting other films in between the Batman movies that also made a fuck ton of money. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah, that's a good point. Well, Raimi started developing a script based on this time travel idea that they had. Uh, he was working with a screenwriter named Sheldon Ledich, who is mostly known for writing Rambo three and a whole bunch of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Nice. Uh, in this version of the script, Ash is sucked into a time portal to the Middle Ages where he would encounter more deadites. I'd watch that. <laughs> Development on Evil Dead 2 originally began as a collaboration with Avco Embassy, who had co-financed and distributed Crime Wave. Though why they would want to work with them again after that fiasco, I am not sure. I would n- yeah. I would not answer their phone calls if I were Sam Raimi. Is but that is that an is that an instance of like the e- you know the evil you know? Maybe <laughs> it, it might be because it seemed like cr- that like Avco Embassy did everything they could to ruin the chances of crime wave being any good. Yeah. You know, geez. well, I consider the over budget on crime wave. It's kind of weird that either one of them would. Want that's to true. Do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very mm-hmm. true. And in this case, embassy just kind of strung Raimi along repeatedly promising the money to produce a sequel, 
but they never delivered the money. They never even like announced a start date for the film or anything. So they were just kind of telling him like, yeah, one day we'll get, we'll, we'll get, we got you, Sam. We're going to get you some money. We're going to get this movie made. And then they just never did anything. Obviously this is frustrating for Sam Raimi. So he just goes ahead and starts the process of interviewing potential cast and crew members for the film with the plan to sever ties with embassy just as soon as a better alternative came along. Well, that alternative soon presented itself in the form of the legendary movie mogul, Dino De Laurentiis. It's a me, Dino. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're going to make a movie, boys. I cannot wait. You know, that sounds like you're doing like a, a very broad stereotype of an Italian person. But honestly, go listen to an interview with Dan, Dino De Laurentiis. <laughs> <laughs> Not inaccurate. <laughs> well, we've mentioned Dino De Laurentiis a lot over the course of this show. Uh, he came up most notably, I think, as the producer of David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone when we covered that film. But his name is one that has come up again and again and will likely continue to come up again and again over the course of however long we do this podcast. So I would like to give a very brief bit of information on him. So with a career that stretched back to the, to the early 1940s, we obviously don't have time to give you a full biography on the guy, but I think it's important that we shed a little bit of light on his career for those who may not be familiar with him. I mean, we're all pretty familiar with him, I think, but I'd hate to assume that you are uh, because I don't know, you're maybe not as big of a dork about this stuff as I am. <laughs> well, Dino De Laurentiis had a kind of a strange career uh, over the course of which he produced or co-produced over 500 movies, ranging from B-movie schlock like Roger Vadim's Barbarella, the 1976 King Kong remake, and the 1980 adaptation of Flash Gordon, to more crit critically acclaimed films like Sidney Lumet's Serpico and Three Days of the Condor, Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, and David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Post-World War II, he was one of the producers who was responsible for bringing Italian cinema to the United States, most notably the early films of Federico Fellini, movies like La Strada and Knights of Cabiria. He was very instrumental in getting that, those kind of things into art houses in the U.S. Also, in lots the of Italians, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it would be awesome if it was. It would be cool, but I don't know that that's true. <laughs> in the 1960s, he built his own film studio in Italy, but that studio collapsed in the 1970s due to financial issues. That is a sentence that you will hear several times while talking about the career of Dino De Laurentiis. <laughs> he, had a, he had a studio. They shut down because he was out of money, basically, as the uh, uh, wash, rinse, repeat. That's the Dino De Laurentiis story. Hey. <laughs> He, he still always manages to get them going again, though. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, in the mid-70s, he moved to the U.S., and he would actually become a citizen of the U.S. in the 80s. Uh, in the early 80s, he opened a new studio, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group in Wilmington, North Carolina, which became the largest movie studio on the East Coast, housing 11 sound stages. Guys, between uh, some of the stuff between James for James Cameron and all the stuff that's going on in like Wilmington, North Carolina, I'm still waiting for us to pull the trigger on a Cinema Shock road trip. Well, I mean, like the that. James Cameron one for the abyss would be a lot closer because that's like half an hour down the road or right, right, right. Road. <laughs> and I don't know that that place is still there. Uh, oh, no. Now, now uh, well, the the one in Gaffney, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to find any concrete information on it. Now, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, that studio in Wilmington is very much still there. Obviously, it's not the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group anymore because um, 
oh, he ran out of money and oh, had to sell okay. the studio. <laughs> oh, I see that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and like the late 80s, a couple years after Evil Dead 2 came out, he uh, ended up se- sent, uh, selling it to Carol Co., the guys who did you know, uh-huh. some of the James Cameron movies that we, we've talked about. We've talked about Carol Co. a little bit on the show here. And the circle um, is now complete. <laughs> right, yeah. So Carol Co. bought the studio. Carol Co. goes out of business a few years later. Yep. And it is now owned by Screen Gems. I think Screen Gems bought, which is a French-based company, Studio Canal Screen Gems, uh, bought it in like the early to mid, like mid nineties. I want to say like 95. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have this information in front of me. So I'm speaking from memory, uh, but I want to say around 95, but it's still there. I mean, they shot um, the Ninja Turtles movies were shot there. Oh, yeah. uh, Dawson's Creek was famously shot there in Wilmington. They shot bits of Iron Man three there. Uh, they, so it's, it's still very much a working studio. It's just no longer De Laurentiis and, nice. and has not been for decades. Nice. Anyway, back to our story. Yes. Back in 1983, we're going to go back a little bit. 1983, Dino De Laurentiis had produced an adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter there in Wilmington. And the North Carolina government at the time, a guy named Jim Hunt, claimed that the filming had increased economic activity in the state, and he used incentives and loans to help Dino De Laurentiis purchase the facilities that would become DEG Studios. Hmm. With the new facilities built, he had also planned on producing several other king-pinned films, including the anthology Cat's Eye and Maximum Overdrive, which was based on King's short story Trucks. That film would serve as King's cocaine-fueled directorial debut and was released in 1985. Well, around the time that Raimi was interviewing potential cast and crew members for Evil Dead 2, De Laurentiis actually contacted Sam Raimi, to see if he'd be interested in directing another adaptation of a Stephen King book. Uh, in this case, it was Thinner. Raimi turned that down, but De Laurentiis remained in touch with him. Of course, Thinner gets made, I don't know, mid-90s probably, I think yeah. is when Thinner came out. Not great. Not It would have been better had Sam Raimi done it. <laughs> yeah. I, I can only assume. Yeah. It would have looked more like Henrietta. Like <laughs> <at> first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the people that Raimi interviewed during this time was a crew member who was also working on King's Maximum Overdrive. Uh, King actually had dinner with this crew member. They had a conversation. It was a woman who, in all the sources I've read, they don't say her name, so I'm not sure exactly what her, what what mem- what part of the crew she was. Uh, but she's having a conversation with Stephen King. She mentions that she had met with Sam Raimi about Evil Dead Two, but that they were having trouble finding funding for the movie. So in one interview, uh, since we do uh, important investigative work here, uh, I can't remember exactly, so nobody sue me, but it was probably either the Blu-ray doc or the commentary or something like that. But somebody mentioned it being the second AD from Crime Wave, which, okay. what, which in that case would have been their old buddy, John Cameron, who worked you know with them before on shorts and stuff. He's the one that went left NYU or whatever, but... Uh, he worked with him on Evil Dead, but since you're saying she, it could have also been Claudia Sills, who was their first AD on Crime ah. So it could have been hmm. either one of them. Yeah, we're not sure because because all the stories, and I've read it, I've read that story about King meeting with this person in multiple places, and none of them say their name, but they, the at least two of those sources I read said she, but again, we don't know. And this happened 30 something years ago. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, uh, we're going to have memory. a list. If we get Sam Raimi on the podcast, we're going to have a list of real random ass questions. And he's going to gonna say, him. I don't fucking remember guys. It was 35 <laughs> years ago. He does that during the commentary. Like I know why he doesn't do commentaries anymore because like 
the commentary track on Evil Dead 2 is Nicotero, Campbell, Spiegel, Sam Raimi, and everybody's talking about stuff, and Sam Raimi the whole time is just like, how do you remember that? What? <laughs> I feel like that Did would we be do me. That? I would, that would, I would be that. That would be me, Sam Raimi. I have the worst memory when it comes to stuff like that. Says the guy who just rattled off a bunch of random info he didn't have in front of him. I <laughs> come on. I Justin. can remember really <laughs> trivial, dumb facts like that, but as far as like memories from my own life, I have a terrible time recalling them. Fair enough. It's, Fair it's enough. a great commentary because Campbell's like funny already, you know, and stuff. Yeah. But so is Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi's a really funny guy, but like he he literally talk anything he's talking about most of the time, it's like a joke. Like they talk about the uh like Bruce will constantly prod him to talk about something and Sam will fuck it up. Like it, it's just like in the, like in the beginning, the, uh, I forget what we called it, the evil dead episode, but the camera that's zooming through and going through the thing, the and, shaky cam, the yeah, force. Yeah. And, uh, so Bruce is like sitting there just like, Sam, tell him about this camera and, and how we, how we did this. And he's like, well, I attached it to the front of a motorcycle and I drove it through here. I remember I had to bust through this door because they didn't open it in time. I think that was you, <laughs> He's just making shit yeah. up. <laughs> and he's like, and this is where I hit Bruce in the face and broke his jaw. <laughs> Last scene we shot, just in case. <laughs> All right. So Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King was, of course, instrumental in the first Evil Dead success, having written a rave review of it that helped to put it in the spotlight. Uh, King actually, call, after he has this conversation with this crew member, whoever they are, he calls up Dino De Laurentiis, who is producing Maximum Overdrive, and he asks Dino to help fund the sequel. I don't remember how much we went into it on Evil Dead, so I apologize if I'm repeating anything, but that King review was so cool, and I wanted to find it, and it's from Twilight Zone magazine mm -hmm. is where it happens. And uh, Sam tells this story that uh, it was during a marketing screen for the con film festival and uh and it was at the con film market uh oh that yeah, yeah. you're right sam raimi in this quote says festival but you're right well i think it happens at the same time as the festival it's just not part of the like competition yeah but again this was their mentor shapiro uh urban shapiro like looking out for him because he said that he had heard from people that king was doing a lot of like sounds during that uh, he said he told he told sam raimi to go he's like go get a quote from Stephen King. Uh, he liked this movie. Um, he was doing a lot of oohs and ahs and stuff like that. <laughs> so uh, he went and um, he said... I thought uh, you meant he was like farting or something during the movie. <laughs> he, was he was farting. He was just he was, making sounds. Uh, he was doing a lot of farts. <laughs> like he got so and, scared uh, that a little toot came out. No, they said they heard he was doing a lot of shouting and screaming and stuff during that movie. So they were like, he seemed to really dig it. So Shapiro told him, go, go ask him. Go introduce yourself and ask him for a quote. And uh, King said, um, I won't do that, but I will write a review. And if there's something in the review you want to use as a quote, you can do that. Uh, so he wrote it for the Twilight Zone magazine, uh, and which was super generous since he's, you know, Stephen fucking King. Yeah. So I, I looked that thing up, but it's 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 such a, a great read. Like it just, uh, um, you know, I won't go into all the details on it, but it's just basically... If you like Stephen King's writing, you'll like the review. It's literally three pages long. Wow. Um, oh, geez. But well, he, he does interview Raimi as well, right? In, yeah, in he, he's got some stuff from uh, Raimi in there, but he's just he's basically talking about how I'm looking at it right now. He says, uh, it doesn't sound like much because he's talking about everything's like derivative of these different things. He said, but neither does Hansel Gretel or Bluebeard in the 
hands of an untalented teller. What Raimi achieves in Evil Dead is a black rainbow of horror. The makeup of his zombies is derivative of Dick Smith's and The Exorcist. His plot is derivative of, of Romero's dead movies. And his small troop of actors ranges from merely adequate to the fairly good. So what's going on here? Mostly what's going on is Sam Raimi, who is so full of talent that somebody, somebody unable to get it together might be tempted to wonder if gobbling the man's fingernails could possibly do any good. <laughs> that's a great that's such a good that's such a stephen king i know that's what i thought too. i was like that's a that's a part that never gets used but i, yeah. I really like that <laughs> that's really good uh so king obviously is a big fan of raimi big fan of the first evil dead so when he hears that raimi wants to make a sequel but can't find the money he steps in uh lets dino de laurentis know now dino de laurentis of course is also a fan of raimi remember he offered him thinner but he was still skeptical about financing a sequel to the evil dead so Raimi and Taper meet with De Laurentiis at his offices, and in the course of their 20-minute meeting, they highlighted the film's extremely high box office in the Italian market. They were speaking Dino's language, not, not literally. They weren't talking Italian. They were, they were talking money. Uh, Dino always looked at the international market, uh, and Evil Dead did very well overseas. So by the end of that meeting, 20 minutes later, De Laurentiis had agreed to finance Evil Dead 2 for $3.6 million. You, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, Bruce Bruce says they were actually courting a few people during this time. They actually got some leads on a couple of people. I just only say this because one of them was Coca-Cola, which I thought was really weird. They said hmm. Coca-Cola was looking to break into the film industry. And uh, wow. they had been talking to them. Uh, but, you know, they've been dealing with them for a couple of months. And they said, you know, all of a sudden they go into this meeting and the foreign market thing is like huge for Dino yeah. uh, where they had worked with these other companies. So long Dino slammed down his red wine and said, you know, what, the boys, I'm a drunk. I'm like a monkey and I love my whole country. So here you go. Project funding. <laughs> he didn't really do that. Nobody else quoted that. that was just me. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's funny that you mentioned Coca-Cola because Avco embassy ended up being sold to Coca-Cola in 1985 oh wow oh, weird yeah um and they also later coca-cola also later bought columbia pictures and then sold embassy to dino de Laurentiis. nice <laughs> <laughs> so that's all it's all connected somehow to coca-cola oh, it's weird one day one day we're just gonna make a big cinema shock map of all yeah, this bullshit. It's going to be like Charlie from uh, Always <laughs> yeah. Sunny. It's just. And then you see what they did here? This is what. That, that's going to be the legacy of this podcast is yeah. us going fucking nuts. <laughs> just connecting all the dots, connecting all the dots of genre film. You'll get all of movie history. And also, these guys lost their families and everything they all. <laughs> That'll be our legacy. <laughs> Uh, so Dino De Laurentiis is on board. He's financing the film, but he does have a few caveats. Uh, most of, uh, well, first and foremost, De Laurentiis didn't want to see Ash fighting in medieval times. He wanted to see him in an isolated cabin in the woods again, essentially a rehash of the first film. So that whole time travel concept they were working on, that's out the window, you know, for now. Well, there's your problem right there. <laughs> it makes no sense. Why would you go back? I mean, it's, you know, he, he saw, I think he saw what, that what worked in the first film and Dino is not necessarily, I want to say he's probably a little bit risk averse because he is first and foremost, like, and he's, he's there for the money mm. and he's like, Hey, it worked the first time. Let's fucking do it again. Yeah, I guess <laughs> so. so. 
And maybe he also didn't want to put up the money that it would have cost to do a time travel movie. Okay. I, I don't enough. know that. I'm just, that's an assumption, but yeah. it's, it's got to cost more to do a period piece than to do just a cabin in the woods. Right. And I'm talking about ashes. If it's some deep character, it's just like well, character would not go back to the cabin. <laughs> well, I don't even know if Dino even knew much about ash at that point. You know, it was probably more the idea of like, all right, well, there's horror movies that just, fucking do the same thing over and over again jason jason's a cabin in the woods movie every time yeah why not if it ain't broke right right. so ramey contacted his old friend scott spiegel another one of the members of the michigan mafia who had made a lot of those super eight films with him and campbell when they were back in high school and a lot of those films most of those films actually had been comedies you know three stooges inspired stuff And Raimi figured that, hey, if I'm going to be forced to tread on familiar ground with Evil Dead 2, at least I could switch things up tonally. So he and Scott Spiegel started working on a new script for the sequel and decided this time we're going to make it funny. Raimi was a huge fan of one of the movies he helped. He played the milkman in one of Scott Spiegel's short films uh, called Attack of the Helping Hand. Mm -hmm. And it is literally the the hamburger helper hand, if anybody remembers that thing. Yep. Who ah. goes psycho and nice. <laughs> so it's like yeah and uh <laughs> i mean like literally you can find this on youtube you can go back and watch it and it's yep. like it has the flip off scene and like a, a lot of stuff and he said this spiegel by the way i really like spiegel he seems like a cool guy he, he seems fun yeah <laughs> uh but he he says that they sat out and sam was just like i'm gonna take attack of the helping hand and we're gonna we're gonna make a whole thing around that yeah uh, he's like i don't know how you're gonna do that with evil dead but all right (laughs) so there they went so the two began writing at sam's house in silver lake a house that he shared uh by the way with the cohen brothers francis mcdormand holly hunter and oddly kathy bates i i gotta ask do you guys think they partied down you mean like a lot you mean did they fuck yes three three ways <laughs> hollywood orgy three yeah. ways yeah all that stuff yeah i think have you seen sam absolutely back, have you seen sam raimi backstage at some of these things or you know behind the scenes at some of these things he's such a dork which, <laughs> which so are the cohen which, brothers which probably <laughs> indicates he, he has a horse-like dong <laughs> it's possible but it's i'm saying possible. i'm saying this as a man who also was not getting laid regularly at this time or participating nor has ever participated in an orgy i just i don't see <laughs> it but i'm also not a movie director so True. you know you weren't living the hollywood life gary i could turn that around do you uh, think sam raimi refers to his penis as the magic wand hmm yes I I, so? I, I, <laughs> this only, is going only, this is going on the list this is going on the list of questions only because as much as i hate it his humor seems similar to yours todd and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, so Thank it is you. possible Thank i think you. he would give it a more clever name like the like the ramo cam you know like those ramo cam yes oh <laughs> well that's that's a legit device but yeah i can yeah, see yeah. him going with with yeah, with the Rambo cam. <laughs> uh, oh God, I hate that. Uh, for for the record, Justin and I had talked about this off off air, but per other sources, not that it matters. The writing, according to Bruce, took place. They had ended up going out like after uh, or during the time of Crime Wave and buying an old dentist office in Ferndale, Michigan, and they made. They were trying to be legit and had built their own office for their nice. company. And so they were trying to be all professional in that, in that place. So 
he was saying a lot of the writing was taking place there only and only because in the in the context of later as we'll talk about a little bit scott spiegel and sam raimi together are fucking goofs and yeah. so <laughs> well it's pot well yeah so you're you, what you're saying is that some your sources say the writing took place in michigan some sources say in silver lake los angeles uh but first of all remember that these are multiple people talking about something that happened multiple decades ago but also there it is possible that they started writing in silver lake and then did most of the writing in Ferndale. Maybe they were just getting distracted by all the orgies with Kathy Bates and Holly Hunter. There you go. Like, possible. We got, like, we got to get out of here. The circle is complete. <laughs> well, it's always weird because you wonder about the dynamic. You can clearly see, like, the dynamic between, like, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi. And then we can talk more about that when we get to the acting portion of things. But the otherwise, you know that Rob Tapper's hanging out and mm-hmm. Bruce Campbell's hanging out. But they don't do the writing. They don't do the production meetings i mean well maybe some of that but they're not you know they're not a part of that whole creative process pre-shooting so bruce campbell talked about him and rob would be in that office building and down the hall they would just hear scott spiegel and sam Ravy just laughing just goofing off yeah just like going (laughs) nuts and they were just like banging things around and doing things and and then they fight he said they they literally uh wit and took out all kinds of sight gags anything they thought could be a sight gag they like took away from them <laughs> they took out stuff <laughs> they said they would still be in there like laughing and joking about things and and bruce campbell says he, he remembers talking to rob and being like are they is that writing is that what writing sounds <laughs> like are they doing is? anything <laughs> But uh, but at the same time, I mean, just for what it's worth, I mean, stuff like the laughing scene in this movie, like where everything's going crazy laughing, it came because like Scott Spiegel, they said they were just like sitting around and Scott Spiegel took like one of those, uh, he called it the gooseneck lamp. Mm-hmm. And he's just like holding on to it, making like a Popeye laugh with it going like. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like Sam was like crying, laughing. And they're like, like a bunch of 12 year olds. That's a scene. <laughs> they're like, all right. <laughs> Well, they had, uh, Ramey and Spiegel had decided, they had made the decision to recap the first film in the opening minutes of the sequel. Uh, Originally, they had planned on simply using footage from the original, just like every Friday the 13th sequel does. I'm watching all those movies right now, and like Uh, every Friday the 13th movie, it's like the, for at least the first quite a few it's like the first 15 minutes is just the end of the previous movie. <laughs> so it's, <kinda> like, <laughs> it's like just a recap previously on Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's what, that's kind of what they were wanting to do here. Do you but, know that the, uh, sorry, I just thought of this just to say it. Uh, speaking of Friday the 13th, the same area where they're at, like, I guess the makeup effects people, um, they're all staying in a house. They said like, literally they went up to the house and it's in a field in the middle of nowhere. And the house, they're like, this looks like the Texas Chainsaw House. And it turns out it was designed by the same person. Um, <laughs> but they're in, you know, North Carolina or whatever. And then uh, down the road was literally a barn from one of the Friday the 13th movies and stuff. So they were like the whole time, just like, we're living in a horror movie right now. Oh, the barn is in part three. Is it three? Yeah. Three's the one. Three's the one with the, that, that's the one that I recall the barn scene in. Uh, the, the 3D one. Yeah. Anyway, that doesn't matter. <laughs> None of it matters. I just said it anyway. Well, because of the way that Irvin Shapiro had sold the first film overseas to various distributors and various territories, getting clearances to use footage from everyone who owned a piece of it would have been a logistical nightmare, especially since some of the distributors who had owned the rights 
overseas had since gone out of business. So they're like, fuck this. We're not going to like deal with that mess. So mm. instead, Raimi and Spiegel decided that they would simply reshoot the recap. But to keep it as short as possible, they kind of simplified it and they cut the cast down from five characters to only two, which were Ash and his girlfriend, Linda. Mm. The tricky thing, uh, well, to, to quote Bruce Campbell, he says the tricky thing with sequels that were never planned is they were never planned. Yes. <laughs> he was, he, they're basically saying like we didn't know we were going to do evil dead 2 for sure like we didn't we had no idea we had we we're gonna have to tie them together at some point and bruce kibble's like oh and also everybody's dead everybody's yeah. dead <laughs> yeah well, including they, they, including ash we assume yeah so, well because the final shot re resurrected yeah well I, I think they i think they did it really well i mean the the first part of this film which is the recap is probably my favorite part of the whole movie honestly uh but you know the first evil dead ends with that camera zooming in it's the force pov shot yeah it zooms in right on bruce campbell's mouth so the audience is making the assumption that he's been taken over by the evil dead and that's the end of the movie he's now also dead so this movie has that same shot and we'll talk about this scene here in a minute but that basically the end of the recap and the beginning of what is the the new narrative is when that four shot goes to his mouth and that's when he goes flying through the woods spinning around you know and then lands in a puddle at the end of it yeah uh, that's where evil dead to the story of the sequel really starts so they 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 integrated the ending and then just showed you what happened afterwards after the after it went to black which is a pretty clever idea honestly yeah. No, it's it's a clever idea, but like even with the casting thing, like uh, if you watch some of the special features, they they actually get far enough with redoing. They had initially thought about that whole crew thing and got far enough that Sam was going to take over as Scott. Like they were going to recast that like, he was yeah. going to take over as Scott in the, from the original. And they have a cast like a of his upper body, like being of Sam's of Sam's. Yeah. Nice. But it was almost like they just got there and were like, uh, this is going to take too long. Fuck it. Yeah, it would have been and, an yeah. hour of the movie. You know, <laughs> so, it would have been half most of the movie. Yeah. So they get this like whole let's pretend it didn't happen. Uh, right. And so which caused some confusion because people were thinking Ash was stupid enough to go back to the cabin right. with a new <laughs> right. girl. Exactly. And, and I only bring all that up because while I was doing research on this movie, I kept running into articles that were talking about like, you know, is Evil Dead to a sequel or a reboot or whatever? And I know we're not into probably all this, but, uh, you know, Bruce Campbell has an explanation saying the same thing you are, Justin, where he's just like talking about, no, 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 no. If you watch it, it's just like a highlight reel. And then you go to like, as soon as the camera hits Bruce or hits Ash, that's where the new movie starts, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, all that. So if you wanted to skip that, it's fine. But don't but, because that stuff's gold. Yeah, it is gold. <laughs> but I, what I hated was I was looking at this on sites like bloodydisgusting.com or Dread Central or something like that. And there were people in the comments like, how are people ever confused by this? They're so stupid. Like, I watched it. I was never confused by that. It's so fucking oh, dumb. And I no, was like, Gary, really? people being shitty on the internet? No yeah. way. <laughs> like, but I'm like watching Evil Dead 2 and I'm like, come on, man. Before the internet, especially, like, yeah. it is not the same thing as Evil Dead. It yeah. is yeah. clearly a different thing happening here. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't blame them. <laughs> I can accept that it's just like, hey, dude, budgets, stuff happens. We had to redo something to get you up to speed. Yeah. Here we are. 
it's fine. But it's I think just it's like, a good... don't act like a prick about it. Yeah, people. yeah. You did not know <laughs> Take better. A it's not terrible for people to be confused by that. Yeah. So I think we may have mentioned it in our Evil Dead episode, but one thing that Bruce Campbell recalled about the theatrical premiere of that film is that it elicited unexpected laughter from the audience. Uh, when they debuted it there in Detroit, people were laughing. And this wasn't a case where people were laughing at the movie because it was like bad or poorly made. Uh, it, they weren't, it wasn't like ironic laughter. You know, it was because they were witnessing things that were so horrific and over the top that it caused the audience to laugh either nervously or to kind of laugh at themselves over how scared they were. You know, when you go watch a movie and uh, everyone kind of jumps and then laughs at each other yeah. or laughs at themselves, it's kind of a common phenomenon in horror. Actually, uh, the weird thing that I researched here was this very this very thing, uh, nervous laughter, which uh, I found on Healthline.com. Just a just a really quick definition: nervous laughter is called incongruous emotion. It means that you experience an emotion when the situation doesn't necessarily call for it, like uh, when I get a boulder in the middle of a funeral. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, see also see also Todd Phillips Joker from 2019. Yeah. Where it's, I mean, his is a little bit more uh, uh, clinical, and oh, he's and, an, he's an insane person. Yeah, yeah he's an insane Mentally, person, not as it, pervy as Gary. I get what <laughs> right, right, right. I was gonna say church, but I mean, you can have funerals in a church. But, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't narrowed it down on which one's actually giving me a hard on. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> is it is it the setting or we're, we're still working through it? <laughs> to be so, fair jesus isn't wearing much up on that crucifix oh Lord, wow. that's true that's, i hey, feel it, like you just took it that next level that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a face kind of like i can save you buddy <laughs> i feel like i could take it even further and i don't want to no, oh no. come on <laughs> gary's gonna mention the hole in the side of this uh, Stomach. Look at Justin doing it. No, I was actually uh, going to say they shouldn't have put, they shouldn't have nailed his legs together. Like, uh, <laughs> and that's all the time we oh, have wow. on Cinema oh, wow. this week, folks. Oh, well, and yeah. we're canceled. I wish we could have at least finished the Sam Raimi series before getting canceled. But. Well, we'll talk about this after the show and if that gets taken out or not. <laughs> So as they set out to write the film, Ramey and Spiegel honed in on that laughter, that nervous laughter that Todd's talking about, you know, with this time with the intent of making the audience laugh. A decision that I think keeps with Ramey's preference to be an entertainer, uh, an entertainer, not just like a horror director. Rob Tapert and Bruce Campbell, who served as a co-producer this time around, sometimes had to actually rein in some of Sam and Scott's more outlandish ideas and pushed them to keep the majority of the movie's action set in and around the cabin, really so they could best utilize their budget, because even $3.6 million, you know, is more than they've ever had, but still not a huge budget by any means. One way that they moved the focus from horror to comedy was in their treatment of Ash, Bruce Campbell's character. In, in the original movie, he's not like a smartass. He's not an idiot. Uh, he's just kind of a dorky dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not the Ash that everyone thinks of when people think of Ash from the Evil Dead movies. But in the new script, Ash was transformed into a shotgun-welding, deadite-killing warrior with a chainsaw where his hand once was. He was sarcastic. He's filled with snappy one-liners. Uh, he's not the kind of charismatic 
dummy that he would become an army of darkness. But this version of Ash was larger than life. He was a hero that could be believable as the hero that fell from the skies. Uh, it's with Evil Dead 2, uh, in my opinion, that Ash entered the pantheon of horror icons alongside Michael Myers, Pinhead, Leatherface, Freddy, and Jason. I mean, Ash is in there. Uh, Ash was also jacked this time around yeah. if, if, <laughs> compared to the first film. He, he's not only acting, but he is looking the part of the hero. And he was able to do that because they actually brought in Mr. North Carolina, a bodybuilder, to wow. train him like six days a week for 12 weeks. Oh, he, yeah. he had it. He had it like a, a room set up, like a, a, just a just bitch pressing and doing all things. He was doing the, the Spartan diet, I believe, is what mm-hmm. he was doing. Yeah, and, eating uh, like fish and vegetables and eggs. Yeah, he was he was on it. Everybody talks about like just how, you know. He's such a ham, but like Bruce Campbell during this is like very serious about fitness yeah. and like just being an actor and yeah. really and he looks, the role. I mean, he looks too. great. He looks like a action movie hero. You know, he's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger big, but he's cut and he was very disciplined in order to do that. And it's funny because they he, he's doing this during the filming of the movie. And Bruce Campbell actually points out that because they shot the movie out of sequence, as most movies are shot, you can actually see a difference. You kind of see the before and after and middle throughout the movie at different points. You can actually tell that he's a little bit more muscular in some scenes than in others, but not necessarily in chronological order. Mm. <laughs> so, but you have to really be looking for it. Yeah, I think so. I think he he maintains it pretty well, but there is like a, there's going to be a big gap uh, where they go for some reshoots. So I imagine that's where that all happened. But yeah, well, other than Bruce Campbell, the film was filled with an almost almost entirely with new faces. Uh, they had actually called Betsy Baker, who played Linda, and asked her if she'd consider reprising her role. But by that time, by the time they were about to start filming this, she had actually gotten married, and she had her first child on the way. So the timing just wasn't right for it. Yeah. Instead, an actress named Denise Bixler was cast in the role. Uh, wife of, or maybe at this time, fiance of our boy, Steve Gutenberg. Yeah, they were married. They were married for a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she but she kind of fell off the radar after this. You know, I mean, she did. She married Steve Gutenberg, did an episode of this uh, random Richard Graco series and was the girl in some early 90s action movie that barely saw the light of day. And to be fair, any one of those things will make you uh, want to quit and move to Switzerland. <laughs> um, but yeah, she moved to Switzerland in 03, and that's that's the end of her IMDb page. Like, wow, yeah. That's it. Well, the remaining characters were all new, ones that had not appeared in the first film. Uh, Bobby Joe, a part that actually had been written for Holly Hunter, uh, which she would have been so good at. I was about uh, to say it. You yeah. could totally see it. You could absolutely see it. Uh, she was played by an actress named Cassie DePaiva, who would, uh, actually not long after completing filming for Evil Dead 2, she starred in the soap opera Guiding Light, where she appeared from 1986 to 1991. Uh, Evil Dead 2 was her first film, actually her only feature film. Oh, wow. Uh, but she's done some TV stuff, but her only feature film. But she had a long career after this movie, uh, most notably on another soap opera, One Life to Live, where she played the role of Blair Kramer for 20 years. She played that role from 1993 to 2013. She also had guest appearances on Melrose Place and Baywatch. She had a recurring role in General Hospital, and she became a series regular on Days of Our Lives from 2014 to 2020. So she's had a really long career, mostly in TV and mostly on soap operas, but she's done very well for herself. Uh, 
you, you know, a lot of the people that we're going to talk about in this movie, they kind of disappear after this. Mm. But even though I, I, I mean, that Cassie DePiva is not a name that I knew. Uh, you know, it's not a name I would recognize, but she's had a very long and successful career. Yeah, yeah. she had um, she's also she, aged very well. I'll be honest, looking at her yeah, in those interviews. She's lovely. Yeah, she's, she's um, a very pretty lady. Yeah, it was just one of those things where like an agent came up to her and uh, got her to read for a part. And she thought it was weird. She didn't understand it. She she says her first thought was, uh, well, Jamie Lee Curtis got her start in yeah. horror. And so, all right, let's do yeah. this. And so, <laughs> it's good not? reasoning, I guess. But I would say the Jamie Lee Curtis story is a bit of a unusual one. It is yeah. not the it is not the norm for people who standard. started it. <laughs> well, maybe movies. that time that's that's what you go off of. I don't know. Yeah. She she was game though. Like I mean, she did the uh, fly ball eyeball thing we talked mm-hmm. about. Uh, and uh, she they said she she was in for whatever. Like even in in her off scenes, like she was she wanted to like jump in and like I'll make the couch laugh like during that yeah, scene and stuff. Like, she was she, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, Bruce she, says, yeah, you know, we, we put her through it easily. By the time we were done with her, uh, she was ready for soaps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bobby Joe's boyfriend, Jake, was played by an actor named Dan Hicks. Uh, this was also Hicks's first film. And although he does not have the career that DePiva has had, uh, we are still going to see him pop up in several Sam Raimi movies uh, and Raimi adjacent films, movies like Maniac Cop, Intruder, directed by Scott Spiegel. Dark Man, Spider-Man 2, and Bruce Campbell's uh, second directorial film, My Name is Bruce. Nice. Yeah, this guy, uh, he ends up becoming a good friend of these dudes. Uh, yeah. It's his first feature film. And uh, yeah, if you haven't seen Intruder, it's part of the uh, Cinema Shock uh, movie club. It's worth mm-hmm. seeing. It's a really fun movie. He's one of the main characters in there. Yeah, he's and, great. Yeah, he said uh, he thought it was awesome. Like he he got the the thing he needed and was like oh i get to ugly up this is fun he said he yeah. literally got up that morning and uh combed his hair with grease from like some his engine on like his, his engine car. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he showed up there they were like what the hell but uh, his, uh bruce said he, he read and was like they were like that's okay and then he was like you want to see it without my teeth and then he pops out his like bridge or whatever yeah. his, <laughs> they were like holy shit perfect yeah. yes <laughs> and he, said, Sam, uh, he, he remembers sam saying he's like finally an actor without an ego <laughs> in the role of annie noby who's the film's lead female role and kind of a pseudo romantic interest for ash at least in the last half of the movie uh an actress named sarah barry was cast now i can't tell you a whole lot about barry uh, except that a couple of years later she popped up in chud Two, bud the chud uh, <laughs> but beyond that she seems to have kind of retired from film acting and she actually came in to read for bobby joe and then ask and she did great they loved her but then she was like can i read for the lead part as well and they're like, well, I mean, you're kind of good as Bobby Joe. And she's like, come on, I'm already here. Let me just do it. And then she did it and they loved her. And they they had her do, you know, a scream. They loved her scream. Say, they, they, they went with the scream. That <laughs> was that's like the selling point, apparently, for Sam Raimi's leads. You got to have the yeah. scream. And even Bruce oh, is yeah. like, she had the soul piercing scream. So yeah. we went with it. But uh, she she seemed all in. I think the Bobby Joe part only said something like a southern wildcat is yeah. what they had. And she was like, well. <laughs> You know, I'm from the South, so I guess I could get it. The agent was like, uh, yeah, you could probably do this. And but yeah, she like worked her way up. Apparently she had been a dancer like right before this, too. And uh, 
So everybody was really impressed with her because she had like scarred up legs and stuff from like stuff she had done during dancing and all mm-hmm. that. But she was like willing to like get in the dirt and like just drag a freaking Danny Hicks across yeah. the ground. So, That's a very, so, very physical role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, she they said she she never complained, never at all. And uh, oh, oh, there was one story Bruce Campbell was talking about. He's like, we had to we had to teach her about like uh, he's like, you know, I had young kid. I had a young kid at the time uh his daughter uh rebecca i think's her name and uh he's like she had young kids and he's like her husband was a professor and they could come and be around the set but then they saw like ted ramey as henrietta and then they were like <laughs> uh he was like you know he's like i always told my girl like yeah you know hey look it's uncle ted in a pig suit look at him isn't that funny blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she was cool they didn't tell their kids anything so like the first time ted ramey walked in they were like freaking out it was yeah, no good guard for life those kids are still in therapy <laughs> uh well rounding out the main cast is rich domier as uh as annie's ill-fated assistant ed uh he has a slightly longer resume than than Barry's, but uh, he hasn't really had any notable roles outside of this one. His his resume is not uh, not not super impressive, though. I think he still does some acting, maybe stage stuff out in out in L.A. It sounds like well, and was a regular at least for a long time on the Home Shopping Network. Like he oh, was, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of like what his career turned into. Uh, he was one of the hosts on there. You're right. Yeah, he talks about how like still he'll be doing the Home Shopping Network, and he thinks it's even cool. Like to this day, like that people would still like young uh, PAs or something will come in with like the evil dead Two Blu-ray and like yeah. ask him to sign it. And stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he, he was another one of those guys, like he had trained in all this other stuff and had planned for whatever, but he says the, uh, where's the agent giving him this thing? And he's like, okay, you do this and this, it's a horror movie. And then you turn into a Kandarian demon. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, all right, uh, let me, uh, go back in my acting repertoire and remember what that is yeah he, he does his like his like um his jack nicholson eyebrows kind of thing yeah he was saying that but that was one of the things he had always like gotten like coming up through acting and stuff was like he could lift his eyebrows higher than jack nicholson's and so he's like well, i'll use that he said whatever face he did at the time they were like all right we can work off this in fact we'll take evil ed and model that face around yours you know yeah well i don't think that Oh, Richie here was on Star Trek, but I didn't look into it too far. So maybe Todd can let us know yeah. if we had any any luck uh, well, tracking with Todd this week. I, I know we've had uh, it's been it's been pretty sparse uh, with the folks uh, in Sam Raimi's uh, crews and and casts uh, for Star Trek. Well, folks, the trend continues. <laughs> There's nobody in Star Trek. Nobody, <laughs> not a single one. Wow. Well, well it's no, a pretty talking sp- cast and crews. Uh, Todd, uh, I just stuck with everyone that is listed mm. uh, and and even the uncredited folks. Well, uh, I've, I've got a crew member. I was about to say, because I, I know let's, some crew. Yeah, let's talk about it in a Star minute. Trek. Let's talk uh, okay. about it in a minute, because I've got one that I'll get to here. In yeah, a second. I was going to save it, too. But yeah, yeah. I, I happen to know some <laughs> of these crew members definitely were on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So while most of the faces on camera were new, there were a few familiar faces behind the scenes in the film, including makeup artist Tom Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan 
on this film only seems to be credited as an animator, stop motion animation, but he also contributed to the film's makeup effects, special effects, and props. He just doesn't have credits on those on screen. Uh, he was responsible for the Book of the Dead creation sequence at the beginning of the film, uh, which was painstaking, like where he had to write, like handwrite, multi- like six pages of that book in the ink colored blood or blood colored ink i should say (laughs) (laughs) and he also did a lot of inserts of the flying deadites in the movie's final minutes well evil dead 2 also offered him the chance to refine some of his designs from the first film sam raimi wanted a bigger version of the book of the dead so sullivan enlarged the pages and then watercolored in what he called the beauty copy of the book which is the one that they use for close-ups in addition to creating a bunch of stunt copies He also added several new pages to the book that represented some of the new elements that the sequel introduced. Which is really cool, by the way, that book. Just like the, I think the, I wasn't sure about the beauty copy. Is that the one with the wooden covers and like the pages with the wire frame in it and stuff? I don't know. I'm not sure what it was made out of. I'm not, Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't Well, in the opening when they animate it, you know, there's the one that flips the pages and stuff. They had like wire framing and like some of the pages and stuff that would help it flip. And I don't know. It was just a a wicked looking thing. But I know Todd had asked on the Evil Dead thing who had the uh, Necronomicon and it's Sullivan. Sullivan's hung on to it. And up until like a little while ago, he was still trying to work something up to sell like replicas oh. uh, to people but i don't know how that went I, I that would be cool that'd be really cool. it's one of those yeah. things that i think his art you know like because he made this like not to get off track but i, I think a lot of people you know just use that design anyway and yeah. don't credit mm-hmm. him you know which is kind of sad but yeah so, so well as long as we're talking about sullivan um there is I, I watched a really great documentary called hail to the deadites that's just about fans of the evil dead franchise and tom sullivan plays a major part on it like they interview him quite a bit uh it's a really great documentary doesn't really give you any insight into the film at all in fact they don't even use footage from the film they use a lot of fan footage like fan made footage like re- huh. recreations nice. of scenes from the evil dead that have been yeah. made by fans which is kind of neat a, kind of a neat way to get around not having to pay to use uh footage from the film but they yeah. talk to tom sullivan a lot and they they even show him at this like monster you know convention kind of thing that he goes to every year where he became friends with a couple of people and then actually helped these two people in a proposal uh it, at the monster convention uh, and nice. it's very sweet it's it, it's really cool and he's like he's like he feels very touched that these people care enough about his work on the evil dead to like want him to be a part of like their proposal and, and their wedding it's really cool uh, uh-huh. i highly recommend watching it i think i watched it on either shutter or the arrow streaming app but it's out there available to, to watch pretty easily nice so Tom Sullivan on uh, Evil Dead 2, he also updated the Kendarian dagger. Uh, this time with a little bit more money, he didn't have to like build it out of plastic skeleton pieces from a you know model kit. Uh, he didn't have to use any chicken bones this time. Oh, uh, <laughs> the dagger <laughs> from the first film had actually been given to Raimi after filming was complete. So Raimi had it and he had Raimi bring the dagger back to his studio. And there he had prop maker Tony Elwood make a cast of the hilt with the blade sculpted by Mike Tursick and Brian Ray. So they recreated this knife. And when Raimi originally approached Sullivan about working on Evil Dead 2, he actually asked him to be in charge of the film's makeup effects. But after reading the script, Sullivan decided that the uh, the scope of the effects needed was just too much for him to handle. Mm. So instead, 
the great Mark Showstrom and his crew, which included Howard Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Bergman, came on to create the makeup effects for the movie. Yeah, if you've ever heard of K&B, that's them. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one of the big legacies for this movie is probably going to be that. I mean, this is really the genesis for Uh, K&B. This is technically before that. Their actual first gig as K&B, I think, is Intruder, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But but this was kind of like the trial run for the three of them. Yeah, they they had had worked together before, but they had all worked together before separately. Like, yeah, not, not all three. Yeah, not all of them together. So uh, they talk about that a good bit in interviews. Like this is the first time they were all in one spot. Um, Mark Shostrom uh, was a huge fan of the original Evil Dead. Uh, And so when he heard about the sequel, he had made a plot to actually get on to the movie. He he wanted to do it. He wanted to do it. He wrote a letter to Irvin Shapiro and asked if he would forward a letter to Sam Raimi. Piero said, yeah. And uh, so he had just done From Beyond and Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And uh, so he put in a bunch of photos from all that stuff and asked Shapiro to send that to Sam Raimi. Said it was like six months later, he got a call and it was Sam Raimi saying, I want you to do this. And nice. uh, we're going to bring these guys in. They're going to be under you. And uh, and that's, that's how it's going to be. So I guess this is a good point to mention also something else that Showstrom's done. I don't know if this is your guy, Justin, but uh, yeah, yeah, I've got, well, let, let me give a little background on Mark Showstrom actually real quick. Okay. Cause I do think that there's a lot of attention placed on the fact that this is where K and B effects kind of essentially got their start. The first time they were all three worked together and obviously K and B effects. These guys are the, one of the greatest makeup effects companies to ever exist. Uh, so, but I, I don't want to focus on that as much as I want to make sure we don't skip over Mark Showstrom, who was a legendary makeup effects artist in his own right. Right. Um, so, but I, I found this really cool story uh, actually on Mark Showstrom's personal website <laughs> that he tells. So, Mark Showstrom uh, grew up as a monster kid, uh, as is often the case with these makeup effects guys, right? He read mon- famous monsters of film land when he was a kid. He was obsessed with universal monster movies, particularly the bride of Frankenstein. The, that movie, uh, ignited in him a desire to work in movie makeup. Like he watched that movie when he was like six or seven years old and he loved it and he wanted to make this kind of stuff. So when he's 13 years old, uh, in ni- this is 1970, his family moved to Hong Kong, where his father worked at, at the American consulate. One day, he's reading the local newspaper, and there's a small mention of Evelyn Karloff, Borlas Karloff's widow. Uh, Karloff had died in 1969, a, a year earlier. Uh, she, It was mentioned that she was in Hong Kong visiting friends, and it actually mentioned in this article where she was staying, which hotel she was staying at, which happened to be directly next to, her, to the apartment building where Mark Shostrom lived. So he's a big monster fan. Obviously, he's always wanted to meet his idols. Jack Pierce is dead. Karloff died a year earlier. Lon Chaney's been dead for years. So he can't meet a lot of them. But he he's like, I, I would really like to meet Evelyn Karloff and just ask, just get some stories from her, you know, about these people that I, I admire. So he actually left a note and some flowers for her at her hotel. Absolutely. And then this later that evening for him. <laughs> yeah. And then later that <laughs> evening, he uh, he received a phone call. Evelyn Karloff had actually invited him over for tea. Uh, she and and he he discusses her like she's just like the sweetest lady, this proper British woman. You know, she's in her seventies or so at this point. And her and uh, Mark and his brothers go to have tea with her, 
And she's kind of regaling them with stories about Boris Karloff and about some of their other friends, folks like Lon Chaney Jr. and Vincent Price and Peter Laurie, uh, you know, which as a monster kid, can you imagine just getting those stories from Boris Karloff's wife? Oh, that's awesome. awesome. (laughs) Eventually, Mark asked her about Jack Pierce, the makeup artist responsible for creating Frankenstein's monster, like one of the most legendary makeup artists of all time. And she didn't really know Pierce very well. Uh, She didn't marry Karloff till like 15 years after uh, he had had done Frankenstein, I think. But she had met Pierce on a few occasions where they were doing other events and things like that. A couple TV shows that Boris had appeared on. Uh, So she she told him what stories she knew. And then over the next few days, um, while she's still in town, they actually met up a few more times, had tea, had lunch. And over the course of these conversations they're having, he tells her that he one day hopes to be a makeup artist like Jack Pierce or like Dick Smith. And she encouraged him to kind of keep at it. He showed her pictures of things that he had done. And she, she's like, keep doing this. Like you can do this, like do this as your career. And he actually gives her a lot of credit for his continued pursuit of doing movie makeup and the subsequent career that he made made out that's of that's awesome yeah it's really cool but then over the course of that career i mean he did work on movies like he was he actually worked on videodrome he wasn't like the head makeup guy we obviously know the whole story behind that but he was one of uh the, the crew on that he worked on gary you mentioned nightmare on elm street too he actually wasn't a, a makeup in the makeup department on part one as well too he was like in charge of the makeup he seems to do um, a lot of uncredited work yeah yeah which that's often the case with makeup effects guys unless you're like in charge of the makeup department or you're like mm. a supervisor a lot of that work it goes uncredited uh he also worked on part three you mentioned uh, Stuart gordon's beyond he worked on dick tracy the warm baby dick tracy nice. uh, john carpenter's prince of darkness uh, he also worked on tv shows like buffy the vampire slayer he worked on quite a bit cool. uh, the x-files he worked on quite a bit and i think this is where you were going Gary. He worked on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and then even more extensively on Star Trek Voyager. Also, nice. uh, one of the uncredited things is he did uh, makeup effects on Star Trek Generations as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On, 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 um, on Voyager, he worked under Michael Westmore, who was yeah, I mean, he, he's worked on Next Generation, First Contact. I mean, he's worked on he's like the one of like the Star Trek makeup guys for that era. We've and given we've given him a lot of love on on Computer Resume podcast. Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. So he uh, Mark Showstrom worked under him making makeup props and things like that. So nice. I just kind of wanted to give. I, he, he's an interesting dude, and he's not a name that you hear as much as Tom Savini and K and the K and B guys, Rick Baker, Stan Winston, all these dudes. You don't hear Mark Showstrom's name a lot. But the dude has worked on some great stuff. I I, I de- dove into it too. This is one of the uh, first times I'd ever really paid attention to his name too. But you know, you even mentioned Prince of Darkness. He also was on some apparently like some other John Carpenter stuff. Like like they live. I think he was like he was there. You know, like doing he was working stuff. On it, yeah. Ramey had initially wanted the Evil Dead cinematographer Tim Philo to shoot Evil Dead two as well, but he also kind of knew that Dino De Laurentiis wasn't going to be on board with having Philo shoot the film since at this time, Tim Philo had yet to shoot a feature on 35 millimeter. He'd only mm-hmm. shot on like smaller formats. So Ramey hired a, a cinematographer named Eugene Shuglet. Shuglet? Is that how they say it? They say it in the interviews. And I, it, yeah, I feel like they, name, I, I, I want to say it's all, honestly like something like Shuglet or something like yeah. that. Because because I was trying to find this person they kept referencing and I couldn't. Yeah. And so, so I think that's him. It's well, he weird spelling. 
It's, yeah, it's 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 uh, an odd spelling and kind of hard to pronounce. But he had filmed some of Crime Wave's reshoots when they went back to Los Angeles to shoot the stuff in the prison. He had shot some of that stuff. So Ramey kind of knew him. They'd worked very briefly together. Well, once shooting commenced on Evil Dead Two, it became clear pretty quickly that Shugle is that what we're saying? Shugle and his crew were not meeting expectations. They were being very difficult. They were being very combative, according to Bruce Campbell. It sounds like, uh, and they were fired. Yeah, I was going to say it's not going to matter much after this point, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was I was wondering because I was like, knowing knowing how much of the DIY spirit that like Sam Raimi Productions have, I, I feel like even up to this point, there's got to there's got to be a bigger story behind that. Um, I think if we are compiling a list of questions that definitely needs to go on there. I, I want to know that story. Yeah, I mean, obviously we can't assume, but to me it has the same feel of like the, uh, the, the, the British guys working on aliens who just thought they knew better than this young whippersnapper who was there. There you know. were the people like that Bruce Campbell and some of the interviews on the DVDs. Uh, actually, I can't recommend the uh, groovy collection enough. It's uh, really people. Great, yeah. uh, <laughs> but Bruce Campbell calls it. Uh, he's like, you can call it the night of the long knives. So we were forced to, because of their uncooperative nature, this whole crew, we fired the whole camera crew, grip, electric department, because they were questioning everything that we did. Move the camera here. Lighting should be here, over there. And we're like, wait a second, guys, this is not normal. We'll tell you where to do the stuff, where to light. Don't worry about it. It's not your problem. And it became not a good situation. So (laughs) we replaced one third of the crew over a weekend it was a difficult situation he says yeah so that i mean when they when they fired him they were left without a director of photography on a movie that's already started shooting Uh, yeah Yeah, um, that's a bit of an issue so this guy actually remains credited in the film as the director of photography of nighttime exterior photography because nighttime exteriors were the first thing they shot in the film so he, he had already done all that right one thing I wanted to mention about those guys, uh, just in K and B and um, just all of our, our makeup effects, folks, they love Sam Raimi. Like everybody who does makeup effects seems to love that guy and just talk about how cool of a guy he is, and uh, that like he's in a ki- ki- he's like a one of the stories was he's like a kid in a candy store. And it was like. Uh, it was like Nicotero saying, like, no, seriously, like you, you bring him five things or like, well, we have these five things we could use. And he'll be like, I want to use those five things right now. Let's 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 figure out a way to fit those into the scene. <laughs> use all of them. <laughs> yeah. And then he would always just be like, he's like, all right, this next scene we're going to shoot. Um, hey, how many deadites do we have made? I'll be like, I don't know. We got like 10 deadites. This scene calls for 10 deadites, everybody. We're going <laughs> to, <you know? laughs> they were like, he's just, I don't know. I, I just love hearing the stories about him. Like everybody seems like really, really cool with it, especially important because what we were just talking about, I mean, these guys knew coming in. So like, especially with like Mark Showstrom, he talks about like coming into this project when he got called into it, you know, like that he walked in, he was just like, this was intimidating. It was a daunting project. For anybody, he was like, there's 700 shots in the movie. And he's like, and it was something like 105 of those are with makeup effects. So that's just different than what, you know, he's like, so, you know, you had to be on your game, but you loved working with him so much that you just, you knew you were doing something worthwhile. And it was, uh, it was important. And it's just, it's, it's good. I I think to see that kind of stuff as opposed to like 
the story we also just told about the camera crew or something that had a problem with you know the way he was doing things yeah i think everyone else is, is generally the, everyone else generally seems to really like working with sam raimi uh i mean because he makes it fun it sounds like you know yeah uh, but he still gets the job done like he's not an amateur i mean he's you know he's he's getting the job done well filming for the evil dead 2 commenced in may of 1986 in wadesboro north carolina uh, which is about a three-hour drive from Dino De Laurentiis' studios in Wilmington. Uh, Dino had wanted the production to shoot at his studio, but Ramey and Taper had learned on Crime Wave that the further they were from studio eyes, the better off they would be. Because <laughs> Waysboro was either like, it's like either you drive three hours from, from uh, Wilmington or you fly to Charlotte and then have to drive an hour and a half to Wadesboro. So it, there was no easy way to get there. Uh, and Dino was kind of irritated with their decision, but Tapert managed to convince him of the merits of the location that they had chosen. Uh, Dino had also planned on charging them full studio rental and equipment fees. So they weren't like, they weren't saving money by shooting at Dino's studio. In fact, they, they knew that they could shoot somewhere else for cheaper. Apparently Wadesboro was a dump. Yeah. <laughs> according to a lot of people. Sounds like there were a lot of racists too, according to some of the. Uh, I was going to say like, I know <laughs> Stars Herger definitely tells me, hey, listen, y'all, I say this as a Carolina boy myself right now, but uh, he says they, they remember going to like a laundromat and like doing their stuff. And like they were in there and it was like all black people around them. And he was like, all right, whatever. And then like this lady comes up to him and is like, y'all know you're supposed to be using the white laundry mat and he's like what <laughs> and yeah apparently there was he was like I, I thought it was kind of a dump and then this happened and then like we found out there was a white laundry mat and they had like an arcade and like all this other stuff we're like jeez what he, he said this restaurants is, were that way too like restaurants yeah. were segregated he said the the makeup effects guys like they literally went to a movie one night and it was there was a white entrance and a black entrance in 1986 in 1986 what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> i mean that is fucked up uh yeah. lord i mean i don't know anything about wadesboro other than the stories here it's uh, it is it looks like it is out in the middle of nowhere it's kind of like I said, an hour and a half east of Charlotte, kind of a little bit above the South Carolina border, uh, mm. like near Rockingham, you know, where the speedway is at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about in that area. But yeah, it sounded like it was awful, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just can't. I, it blew my mind. Well, two weeks into shooting with no cinematographer still, Ramey reached back out to Tim Filo to offer him that job again. Uh, Filo read the script and in reading the script, he noted the complexity of the shots that Ramey was trying to pull off. He's like, we're using in-camera in trickery, green screen, physical, physical effects, matte shots, sometimes three or four of these elements at once in any one shot. He knew that he was not going to be able to shoot it on the schedule that Ramey was giving him. Uh, the shoot had nine weeks to go. It was an 11-week shoot. They were already two weeks in, so they had nine weeks to go with a concrete finish date of August of 1986. So mm. Filo actually declined the offer to shoot the film. Ramey did manage to find and hire another cinematographer named Peter Deming. Now, Peter Deming, if you look at his IMDb now, it's pretty impressive. He's had a pretty long career since Evil Dead 2. He's done uh, like all three of the Austin Powers movies. Uh, he did Scream 2 and 3. And in, in my opinion, the best work of his that I've seen are David Lynch's Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, both of which look absolutely incredible. Uh, but back in 1986, he was kind of a new kid on the block. He only had two features under his belt. Mm -hmm. 
But by the time he came out on board as the film cinematographer, most of the exteriors had already been shot. But there was one major outdoor sequence that they still needed to get. And that's the scene where Ash is picked up by the force. You know, it's, it's that moment where it changes from the, the recap to the actual sequel material. Ash is picked up by the force, spun through the air in the woods before being dumped into a muddy puddle of water. I wanted to say just, uh, just through this too, that, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of this stuff on that uh, uh, stage. They built in like a high school, just not to, to blow through it. I mean, Sam, when these new people came on board, apparently had to get tough with these people. Like uh, there's a lot of stories on stage about how he, he, he had to give the speech, like with, the, with all that stuff you're just saying, like he was in the middle of the gymnasium and just said like, you, you know how much time we have, you see what we're up against, you know, what we're dealing with. If you need to go, go now, but otherwise we're working. Sounds a lot yeah. like the same speech that James Cameron had to give yeah. to the, the British crew on Aliens, <laughs> to, to reference that one again, where he's yeah. like, hey, we got to get this done, guys, and I need your help to do it. Well, their friend David Goodman, who's like the studio manager and stuff, he said that like the, stu- the, uh, the studio and everything, they just were like, okay, we know this is the guy. Like, this is, you know, he's sweet, but he he's going to do what it takes to make his movies, and nobody's going to stand in his way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, to pull off this scene that that uh, where Ash is being flown through the air, they had to use another famous Raimi rig. This one's called the Sam O'Cam, uh, <laughs> which was a modified crane extending a long mechanical arm, and then there's a giant metal X on the end. So they would take Bruce Campbell, and he would be strapped to the X like he's being crucified. <laughs> and, and the don't, X- don't get a boner, Gary. <laughs> oh, God. Well, now if we were going to pull that joke, (laughs) we can't. (laughs) Well, uh, that X would spin. It could spin both directions as the crane rolled forward. And uh, and by the way, Sam Raimi was the one controlling the spin, of course. Of course course he was. (laughs) (laughs) And that scene was shot in Chiraw, South Carolina, uh, which is a little bit low, you know, a little south of where they were shooting in Wadesboro on the other side of the South Carolina line on a three quarter mile stretch of deserted road. Yeah. They had to uh, find like a, you know, like a, a, a big stretch that had no curbs uh, yeah. because they would just, and then Sam is like in control of it. Uh, it's, Bruce tells the story about a guy. Uh, I think he said his name was like Vern Hyde. who's like one of the operators or one of the people working like down below him. And he said he would get on there the first time he got on. He's like, Bruce, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? And he's like, I don't know. Like, what, what, what do you care? And he's just like, because uh, whatever it is, it's probably coming back up and I'm below you. So I just need to know <laughs> <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs> and of course, this is just one of many scenes where Raimi used the film to playfully torture his old friend. Uh, and another one of the film's key sequences, uh, Campbell used, utilizes his uh, incredible physical comedy skills in the evil hand scenes, which required Campbell to flip over, uh, onto his back, like Campbell's a stunt man in this movie. Uh, yeah. He's smacking himself in the face with dinner plates over and over and over. And you know Sam Raimi is just making him do it over and over and over just because he's getting a he's it tickles him. You know, yeah. this is I think in my opinion this is like one of the best scenes of fem- physical comedy ever committed to film. Yeah, uh, I, it's, I mean, and if you look at that shot, 
there's i mean he's flipping around on the floor like yeah the, you can see it on a wooden not, floor yeah there's no hiding mats or anything no. like that and he's really doing the stuff and that's <laughs> that is and he's acting like his hand yeah. is acting as a as a separate character in, even in the scenes where it's you know still attached to him and then there's that one scene where where he's been knocked unconscious and his hand is dragging him across the floor uh-huh. and to be able to act with only your hand while the rest of your body looks convincingly unconscious is yeah. in- pretty impressive. I mean, it is pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's a great, that's a great scene. Yeah. Mark Showstrom says that was like one of the first things they did when they came on, on set is they had that hand that was going to be pulling him and the Bruce has to stab it. And they had built in the bladder to like burst when the knife goes in. And he was yeah. like, so he was so uh, just, to give you an idea of like the, how much it means for like people like him to care this much about this role. He was talking about how nervous he was for like that moment of like that whole project working. Like they had tested it like 10 times. <laughs> they were like, mm-hmm. all right, and Bruce is going to stab it and the blood's going to come out. And, and they were like, and Bruce is one of the producers. So we're like, this got to work. And uh, yeah, you got to prove like, yourself. Yeah, and so they said they were standing there just like waiting, and like Bruce stabs it, the blood comes out. Then like uh, he said, like Bruce looked up at him and he was like, "My God, that son of a bitch worked." <laughs> he was like, "Yes, N- nailed it, nailed it." <laughs> uh, the majority of the film's interiors were filmed inside of an old high school in Wadesboro. Uh, the school was converted into a makeshift soundstage that housed the sets for the interior of the cabin and the cellar, uh, and then they would screen dailies in the school's auditorium. The library became the production offices. Uh, several classrooms were used for special effects workshops. The uh, well, the cafeteria they used to cook food. <laughs> that was their mess hall. Nice. Now the first film, if you remember, they shot that in the dead of winter in a record-breaking low temperature uh, in there in Tennessee, also in the South. Well, for this one, they're shooting in the middle of a Carolina summer. Remember, they started. They're shooting May through August in fucking North Carolina, oh, God. which is. A horrible idea. It, clearly the plan of somebody who has never spent a significant amount of time in the South in the summertime. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because we can tell you as three guys who are from South Carolina that it gets fucking hot in the summer. <laughs> yes, and more does. than that, it gets humid. Oh, humidity so, is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So with uh, the temperatures outside hovering at around 100 degrees during most of the shoot, Inside the poorly ventilated school gymnasium where they were shooting, which was made even warmer by these tungsten lights that are required to shoot the film, the temperature uh, reached nearly 110 degrees most days. Jeez. (laughs) There was an actress named Lou Hancock who was playing the role of Henrietta Noby, the the wife of the doctor who's been killed, the mother of Annie. Uh, (laughs) But Raimi was worried that she wouldn't be able to take the heat inside of the makeup that she would have to wear in her possessed form. So he actually cast his brother, Ted, in the role. His Ted's like 20 years old at this point. So he's like, yeah, I can do it, whatever. He had to be put on like oxygen when he wasn't uh, on camera. They'd take the, the mask off and put him on oxygen. He's just sweating. There's actually a scene in the film where you can see there's a like a break in the seam, I think, around his ear. And there is just a waterfall of sweat pouring out of the makeup. And well, that it's like- is... It's like, like Bruce lifts really him up or something and it like it turns to the side and you can literally see it come out and it's mixed with like some of the white makeup that's yeah. in there. And mm-hmm. if you watch some of the backstage stuff, like they take off his feet at some points 
and like there's just like a river of sweat that can you imagine what that smelled like uh, <laughs> oh my god and not only such a like, trooper not like, only like sweat and body odor but mixed with the smell of hot latex uh, <laughs> it had to be awful howard Berger says like he remembers like sam telling him i think it was Berger at one point that like he was just like the hero has to suffer and so they were like you know obviously he beats the shit out of bruce gamble the whole time yeah but uh He's like the only other person that might have suffered more is Ted. Like yeah. Ted, yeah. Like just he just <laughs> did not care, and no. it was like it just no matter what you did to him, like you there were like the scene where it was like I think Campbell and Rob Tapper are like lifting him out of the basement at one point. He like tips over and falls, and it rips the suit, and the yeah. crotch, and they stuff. had to super glue it back together. I think they have to super <laughs> glue it back together, but like no matter what, like uh. Uh, oh, the, the, the contacts everybody wears with their dead eyes are like these white contacts. And there, and there's before they figured out, I guess, pinholes in the things you can. Well, see they also weren't soft contacts back then, like they are now. Right. Yeah, they're they're hard, so they're very uncomfortable, and you can't wear them for very long. So, like Ted would get like dirt behind his and be Ugh. like, he would do the scene and just be like, my eyes are burning, and he's. <laughs> they would be like, Sam would just be sitting there, just like. Okay, buddy, don't get don't get all upset. Don't be a baby about it. Let's just keep going. You can do this. <laughs> there, it is a he does give a really great performance. I mean, it's a really great performance as Henrietta. I mean, that is a tough performance, but he still nails it. Like it's funny, it's scary, it's disgusting. And to be that memorable under that much makeup when you're also pretty inexperienced as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you got to give Ted Raimi props, I think. One of the one of the coolest things is like Mark Showstrom is like very good about I mean, if you get that uh, again, I don't know what other uh, documentation there are on other DVDs, but on the Groovy collection, Mark Showstrom's like videos are there and he they would like film like fun videos for themselves and they would mm-hmm. film like the getting the makeup ready. I think I think earlier than a lot of people were thinking about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, and so you can see Ted Raimi getting ready and like just uh and a lot of the before and after and stuff like that. And it's it's really cool, like just seeing that whole process happen. Uh the lady who played Henrietta, I mean, yeah, she was not gonna be able to tolerate that. Although there was a scene they cut out that I every time I saw it, like in in discussion, I was like, Man, they should have kept that. And it was like the professor like leaning over the recorder talking and she's knitting in the background. And there's like one scene where she like leans back, like rocks back at her rocking chair in the dark and comes up and her eyes are all white. It's Ugh. fucking creepy. <laughs> <laughs> did, now, did, did they, can you watch that footage? They did shoot it. Yeah, they have the footage. They just yeah. cut it out. It's, it's ah. weird. They, they cut out, uh, they cut out random stuff that I'm like now just kind of, I wish they had left that in. Yeah. There was one of uh, evil Bruce, like eating a squirrel that looked kind of dumb. <laughs> but uh there 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 is stuff like i mean he he like chops up evil ed you know with an axe and they mm-hmm. like apparently cut like a lot of that and they were just like it was too much and i'm like on evil dead yeah <laughs> that, that, was, that was too much are you is this the same movie uh, because just... because i know we're gonna deal with this later but like especially with evil ed like his blood's green mm-hmm. and it's like weird you know like none of this movie has like regular blood no no it's all cartoon colors yeah yeah, yeah. uh but by the way if you're wondering i did look it up and i found sam Raimi's blood recipe uh <laughs> it is uh one bottle of corn syrup 
two to three ounces of red food coloring, one cup instant coffee mixed with water into a paste. Mix well. It stains everything, but is safe and non-toxic for your actors. Nice. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, there Yay. it is. Well, the film did run over schedule by a few weeks, missing that August completion date. Uh, and then because he was kind of in a hurry to get it finished, he once again, Sam Raimi once again, asked Tim Filo to come on the film to help. And this time, third time's a charm, I guess, uh, because <laughs> Filo came down to North Carolina at the end of September and helped to work on the shot of the force uh, chasing Ash's car, which hits a tree and then throws Ash out. Then the force swoops through the Delta 88. The, the classic again is mm -hmm. here. It, it swoops through the Delta 88's rear window and then smashes through the windshield to continue attacking Ash. It's a really incredible shot. Yeah, and in one. order to pull it off, they used a device that they called the Ramo cam. Now the Ramo cam is, there's a picture of it. Um, in Bruce Campbell's book, it, it, Bruce Campbell's, uh, by, by the way, I've, I know we've mentioned it on every episode so far, but If Chins Could Kill is an incredible resource, but he's actually got uh, little drawings of all of these camera devices that they use, the Rambo cam, the Samo cam, the shaky cam, all these things that they were using. Uh, he's actually got little like diagrams of what they look like. So nice. the Rambo cam was basically a metal cart with wheels on it with a big metal pole sticking off of it that could that could lift up and down like a crane. And on the end of that pole, which he's, I think Bruce Campbell said it's about 20 feet long, 15 or 20 feet 20 long. feet long, yeah. yeah. And on the end of that crane is a camera and then a couple little metal prods that stick out a little bit further than the camera lens so that when they push it forward, they, it needed to be on the tilt so where it could go up and down because it starts at like road level and then lifts up and goes through the windshield. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then those two little prods would bust the window. So you've got a couple of guys pushing this cart, controlling the camera. They actually break through the back window. These little metal prods break it. And then they continue out through the front of the car the same way. And they, for each take, they would just have to replace the windshield and the back window on the car every single time. And then they would, and they would screw up. They would hit like the rear view window or it wouldn't go in the back window. Right. And it would just ram into the back of the car. Obviously a very it difficult took, like, multiple, Yeah. Like yeah. multiple tries. They said there was a big celebration. Like once they yeah. finally had nailed it, but it's a, it's a very inventive device that they came up with to get it. And it is in the final movie, an incredible shot. I think. Yeah. I think yeah, it it's, really, a, it's, it's a cool a, shot. It's a really cool shot that until I started researching this, I was like, how in the hell did they pull this off? Like, what, are, what did they do to get the shot? It's crazy. I think they use it in, uh, did you say like, a, like I think when it comes for uh, Linda or whatever, in the, uh, like uh, it busts through the window, I think too. Like, yeah. Uh, At the beginning her. of the movie even? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, no, it was it was crazy. I mean, that's the thing with Sam Raimi. You got to like trust him. I mean, you're talking about Bruce and you, and you keep, and you're saying like, you know, sorry for bringing it up, chins could kill, but Everybody you talk to, I mean, the important part here, especially in these early movies, is is that um, everybody will tell you it's not just Sam. It's like this whole crew. Like yeah. it's it's this, yeah. and, and Bruce is a huge part of it. Oh yeah, uh, that Bruce and Sam are like symbiotic. Like they're very important together. They they work. They they, they think similarly. I feel like somebody they called him, you know, Sam's De Niro, and yeah, like, they they said like literally, you know, this is sounds like a planned callback but it's not but like that they you know they're they're like they have their own like phrases and language that they use together that they just know what each other is thinking yeah. and um mm -hmm. 
very similar sense of humor. Like I, I get, they, they are a great team. There's, there's a lot of fun stuff just on that backstage footage where it just seems like, all right, well here, like on that scene you're talking about with the car, they're like, Bruce is going to get pulled through the windshield. And I think we're <laughs> just going to tie like a rope to his neck and pull him straight through the windshield. And I hope you survive this, Bruce. It's going to be very difficult for you. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great to continue the movie with you living. <laughs> Well, from this point, the production moves back to Detroit from North Carolina, uh, where Tim Filo oversaw a few other pickup shots, uh, including the scene where Linda is attacking Ash with a chainsaw, uh, which is a great scene. And another one where Sam Raimi was just having a blast torturing his friend. Because if you watch the behind the scenes footage on that, that like Linda puppet is just like, he's like, hit him harder. And they're like deliberately running her directly into Bruce Campbell. <laughs> that was the one where like the, the, the makeup guys are like, they're the effects guys are like all learning what Sam Raimi's all about too, because they're like, we're getting ready for this, like uh sever head, you know, like there, there's no head on this person. It's going to chase all. We had all these ideas and Sam's like, no, we, well, this is what we'll do. And blah, blah, blah. We're like, it's like a Muppet, like a Muppet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they go in there and like, uh, like Nicotero's up on the roof, like operating like, uh, the arms, you know, like a marionette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like burgers, like below, like moving the thing. And they're, they're talking about like, they're just like, this is not as scary as I thought. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people didn't realize at the time that they were working on a comedy. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the behind the scenes guys, the cinematographer, the effects guys, like they, you know, it, which a lot of that comes into the editing, you know, a lot of that comes later. Uh, although Bruce Campbell is obviously knows he's doing a comedy. Uh, well, I mean, those, those really effects guys, I mean, like literally talk about going to a screening in Detroit or somewhere like afterwards, they like sneak into one and watch it with and like Sam and those guys are there and they don't know what they're going to get into, but then yeah. they watch it and then they're like all stoked and like afterwards yelling at Sam and then like this movie rules. <laughs> Another scene where Philo helped out once they're back in Detroit, kind of getting these final shots they need was the scene where there's that hole in the wall and blood just like mm. gushes out into Bruce Campbell's face. Yeah. Uh, so to pull this one off, because of the amount of blood shooting out, what they had to do was they basically built the entire set sideways. Mm -hmm. So the wall is the ceiling, essentially. Right. Uh, you know, and then the camera's mounted on its side as well, so that when you play the footage back, it looks like it's upright. And then to make it appear as if he's standing upright, because Ash is standing up in that room. Uh, Bruce Campbell's basically laying on a wooden board that's hidden underneath his clothing. So he's got this piece of wood going up his back yep. and <laughs> they're like, you're going to, all right, you're going to lay on this board. And then we're going to, this is, and by the way, this is kind of, uh, as I was reading this description, I'm like, this is kind of a play on like the rotating set that we talked about for the fly. Only this one doesn't rotate, but it's the same concept where you're shooting it from a weird angle to make it look like it's upright, you know? Right. So, so Bruce Campbell's laying here on this piece of wood and we're like, all right, how are we going to, what are we going to do? Um, we're just going to dump 50 gallons of fake blood directly onto you. <laughs> and Bruce Campbell's, like, Bruce Campbell's like, well, how long is that going to take? And Sam's like, however long it takes for 50 gallons of blood to pour out. <laughs> like, so, so Bruce, I can't imagine how that felt on his back with 50 gallons, like hitting you and you've got this wooden thing just digging yeah. back. And Jeez. Bruce Campbell said that like afterwards he was 
he was like every time he'd blow his nose for weeks fake blood would come out because <laughs> he gets like completely covered yeah just <laughs> completely it's drenched so just it's, absolutely drenched the same thing so happened funny. to hicks too like when uh they, they they're pulling his character you know into the basement his yeah, body yeah when the all that blood starts shooting out yeah he says like the tube that was shooting the blood like somehow got dislodged and like he was just happy to be there so he like took it but like it got dislodged and it's like blowing directly in his face <laughs> yeah. and he's like i could have died there it was yeah. like thanks for some great footage though yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it like blowing up in no. my face so we've mentioned tom sullivan uh tom sullivan uh as we get into the the post-production you know he was one of the animators who contributed to the film that we've already talked about but another one that we need to mention is a guy named doug beswick so doug beswick had a long career in stop motion animation dating all the way back to the gumby show and davy and goliath remember davy wow. and goliath that like christian oh, yeah. stop motion show that came out i don't hey. know was that like the mid to late 60s probably hey, hey davy <laughs> he also worked on star trek wait no I'm sorry, Star Wars. Ah. Yeah, your hopes up, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> and on Star Wars, he created Greedo's mechanical antenna uh, and his lips. And he also helped create the armatures for the Tauntauns in The Empire Strikes Back. Nice. He also, and this is notable for fans of, of Cinema Shock, he was also one of the stop motion animators responsible for the future exoskeleton scenes in James Cameron's The Terminator, the first, uh-huh. the first one. Uh, he also contributed uh, to Aliens, to James Cameron's Aliens. Sweet. Well, one of my favorite scenes that he worked on was the Freddy skeleton battle in 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. So him and Mark Shostrom both worked on Dream Warriors. Uh, and that's a sequence that is heavily inspired by the work of Ray Harryhausen, which of course is near and dear to Sam Raimi's heart, uh, which we're going to see. We see a little bit of that here, but we're really going to see that in an army of darkness, that influence well, of Ray Well, I was going to say, they they literally, like some of the guys, especially, um, uh, you know, you're mentioning Messwick, and then like uh, there's... Uh, uh jim uh Belovic, who's like one of the miniature supervisors and mm-hmm. stuff and they, they they're using like cameras that like the exact cameras that harryhausen used on a lot of these scenes it's weird to see like harryhausen pop up so many times in this show you know yeah. but it's 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 funny how how that works but uh they're they're definitely paying homage to him and a a lot of this stuff oh yeah well and and one of the main scenes that beswick was in charge of for evil dead 2 was the headless linda dancing in the woods one of the best scenes in the movie in my yeah yeah so after being contacted by ramey and tapered about coming onto the project he hired a choreographer to design the dance that choreographer by the way was uh sam ramey's high school drama teacher was it really yeah (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I forgot her name now, but it was the, uh, he went to his high school drama teacher. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, after the choreography was in place, they hired a dancer to perform this choreographed dance. And then they filmed it in 35 millimeter against a kind of plain grid background. And they filmed it several times from various angles. And then they sent all of this raw footage back to Sam Raimi and, and Tapert who cut the footage together and they, they cut it together with the footage of Bruce Campbell that they had already shot. And they basically edited the scene as if it was going to be in the movie, but using this live action footage of this dancer that they'd hired uh, using all the different takes and the different angles that they wanted. And then they sent that back to Beswick and he basically used that edited sequence as a reference for how he was going to animate the sequence. So he would only animate 
the parts and from the angles that Raimi wanted based on that edit. It's a really cool, really interesting way to handle this sequence, I think. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's kind of, it's almost like the, it's almost like a form of rotoscoping. Almost, yeah, almost, except he's having, instead of going over it, he's recreating it. Right. But it's a similar concept. It really is. So Beswick then creates a 12-inch model of the undead Linda and then painstakingly stop-motion animated it on a miniature set that matched the background from the live-action footage. Uh, and I, by the way, the, uh, the one of the best moments in that sequence is when she takes off her head and it kind of does this Fred Astaire roll down her arm. Yeah! Um, that was actually the choreographer's idea. That wasn't like written into the script. It wasn't a oh, Sam Raimi. Wow. It seems like a real Sam Raimi idea, but that was actually the choreographer's idea to do this like Fred Astaire hat roll with her head. Uh, That's and pretty it's, awesome. It's a very memorable <laughs> moment, I think. <laughs> So in addition to the stop motion dance, Beswick and his crew were also responsible for the big tree limb that comes through the door, kind of like King Kong style towards the end of the movie, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, And also what they call the Applehead character. That's another Three Stooges reference, by the way. The the Applehead is like a thing that Mo would call Curly, you know, an an Applehead. (laughs) So that was what (laughs) Raimi called this, the Applehead. That's that big demon, that uh, that big demon face that comes in that grabs Ash at the end. Yeah, yeah. Now these were not. It turns his hair white. Yeah, yeah. That turns his hair white. The hair white thing was Tom Sullivan did that animation. He did, Uh, and he took like a blowtorch to the roses next to him. I thought that was really cool. I mean, it was like a slow that that stuff. Like, I mean, I get it; it's outdated, but it's. I still it's love a, it though. The painstaking process yeah. that, that I like. Makes. I like being able to see the work behind it on mm-hmm. screen. It, it, if that makes sense, uh, you know. No, it does totally. Like just that they're like stepping in frame by frame and like like really making something happen. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's it's wicked. It's but, really uh, cool. But those those other things that Beswick did, you know, the tree limb and the applehead demon. Uh, those were not miniatures. They were, those were full-size mechanical creations that they're creating on set. Another important contributor to the film's post-production was the returning Joe Loduca. Joe Lo! <laughs> I, had to, I had to give it to Todd. I had to, like, I had to pause so that he could do that. Yay! <laughs> He's so happy. Look how happy he is, Gary. <laughs> He's so happy. <laughs> this time, instead of doing kind of a cut-and-dry horror score, uh, Loduca had to match the tone of the sequel, which ranged from scary to emotional to funny. And I adore the score to this movie. No, I fucking nailed it. I've got like it on uh, vinyl. I threw it on yesterday just to listen to it. And it's so big and operatic. Like he he knew that this movie was going big in, 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 in the tone of it. You know, it's not going for realistic. It's going for something kind of outlandish so he Mm -hmm. does this big operatic score that i think works so so well for this movie i just really really love the score to this movie i I, yeah i i think this uh score is is absolutely perfect there's nothing wrong with it that well you know that's kind of how i feel about the whole movie look at my letterbox but right yeah (laughs) (laughs) while this was a physically demanding shoot especially for campbell uh it was relatively smooth all things considered especially compared to the tumultuous shoots for the first evil dead and crime wave Mm. Uh, in fact when all was said and done it actually even though it it went over schedule it actually came in under budget oh wow (laughs) Uh, but once again uh they hit a bit of a roadblock when it came time to distribute the film so you may notice that at the beginning of the film, there's this cheesy little title screen for a company called Rosebud Releasing Corporation. Yeah. Well, Rosebud Releasing 
has distributed exactly one movie ever. And that movie is The Evil Dead 2. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> now, a lot of people believe it. Now, in some of the behind the scenes stuff, you may have seen Gary. Bruce Campbell actually talks about this a little bit, uh, about this this company being created as a kind of shell company. Bruce right. Campbell actually says that, that Sam Raimi shot the image of that rose opening in it. Uh, Sam so, in the commentary says he can't remember who animated the rose, but yeah. yeah, like he basically got like a lot of the shots and somebody animated it. Yeah. So this was a shell company that was created by Dino De Laurentiis for the sole purpose of releasing this film. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you've watched the movie, which I hope you have, because we have spoiled the entire thing at this point, <laughs> but you may have noticed that it's a kind of graphic movie pretty violent lots of lots of blood lots of bodily fluids uh, although it is played for laughs and although most of the blood is actually not blood colored but it's a weird green color or it's black mm. uh, De-, De Laurentiis DEG they knew that they would have a battle with the MPAA on their hands if it were submitted for a rating they knew that there was no way this was getting an R rating when Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell made this movie they they did not make it with the intention of it being an R rated movie they knew that, that if this movie is never going to get an R rating it's impossible so they decided that the film should be released unrated, just like its predecessor had. Now, of course, an unrated movie, as we've mentioned, does harm the box office potential of a film because there are newspapers who won't run ads. There are TV channels who won't ru- run the, um, the, the trailers for it. So, and there are theaters who won't play it. Mm-hmm. So it is difficult. It is, it does make it more difficult, but they wanted this movie released as is, so they decided to release it unrated. Well, the issue here is that DEG was a signatory of the MPAA, mm-hmm. uh, an agreement that meant that it could not legally release an unrated movie. That was part of the terms. Mm-hmm. So Rosebud releasing was created so that the film could be released without a rating that, in a way that wouldn't harm DEG. So basically... De Laurentiis sold the rights to release Evil Dead 2 to Rosebud so that they could release it unrated. So it wasn't they sell they sell it for like a dollar or something. Probably. I, <laughs> I, I didn't see an amount anywhere, but it was probably something along that, which is the only reason that this release, you know, company, this distribution company who had never released a movie before somehow got this movie in theaters all across the country. Yeah. <laughs> What's well, the nutty part? Like, I mean, you know, Kay Davis, who did the editing on this movie, she uh, she she mentions in some of the uh, extra features on the DVD that, that, you know, the editing was kept in Michigan because Sam knew that that was, I mean, that was all part of that same discussion. Like we talked about North Carolina that was like, studio can't get involved if you're editing over here. And uh, so the only person that they were required to screen for was Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, he would come and watch screenings of it. And uh, he was cool. But, you know, they kept that blood like they were working as best they could. But by the time they got to the point they they got to when the MPAA was like demanding that, like, there's got to be cuts. This is an R. They're like, there's no more cuts we can make. There's nothing else we can do. This is this is how it is. So Sam refused it. De Laurentiis or Sam Raimi was also contractually obligated to do a TV edit for this, for De Laurentiis. <laughs> and they tried, they tried, they tried to do a TV edit, but it just like, what, what, what would be left of this movie <laughs> if you uh, put it on TV? So eventually they just ended up giving up on it, but they were supposed to produce a TV, cre- a, a TV version of this 
that uh, sweetheart uh Kay davis <laughs> like she just seems like a sweet lady <laughs> she's doing this editing but she's one of the people that talks about like sam came in with like the movie was edited in his brain like he just knew she said she was kind of nervous because they had gotten the stand-up moviola to do like some of the editing and uh she said at one point she's like feeding film into it and her finger gets caught in like the blade that like is cutting things <laughs> and she like pulls it out and she's she's like uh look at it she's like bleeding from her finger and everybody's just like okay all right everybody's cool but she like turns and sam raby is there and sam raby looks like he is about to toss his lunch like he is just like sitting there <laughs> and he's like she's like he's about he's ready to barf and i'm like sam it's okay baby you are are you all right he's just like i'm not good with the sight of blood <laughs> <laughs> how ironic i love yeah. that <laughs> Evil Dead 2 was released on Friday the 13th of March, 1987. Uh, It was released in just a little over 300 theaters at the time, which did hurt its box office chances, but over time would end up grossing almost $6 million in box office receipts. Not a major hit by any means, uh, but it would also, you know, like its predecessor, The Evil Dead, it would find its true life on home video where it was a massive hit. Nice. Also like the first film, reviews from critics were generally pretty positive. Uh, The New York Times called it, uh, quote, genuine if bizarre proof of Sam Raimi's talent and developing skill. Roger Ebert described it as a, quote, fairly sophisticated satire that makes you want to get up and shuffle. I'd love to see Roger (laughs) Ebert get up and shuffle. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, not now, because that'd be... be It'd be like the Delinda scene. It'd be like Evil Dead 4. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Luckily, uh, even modern viewers, I think, are pretty fond of this movie for the most part. But I have to imagine there are some naysayers out there, Gary. Justin, you know that no matter where you look, if it's the Internet, you can find somebody that needs a nap. All right, I'm going to try to jump into these and uh, knock them all out here because I think anybody who writes a review that's less than five stars is stupid. No, I, I won't say that. I, I don't mean that legitimately. I get it if it's not your taste, but you have to appreciate the movie's good. <laughs> or the yeah. movie's well made. Anyway, point is, here's a uh, Disdressed. I like that name, though. Dis, D-I-S, Dressed. Uh, evil... <laughs> absolute garbage is the title of this review evil Dead two is possibly the worst movie ever made bad acting a plot that made no sense it had more holes in it than swiss cheese supposedly a sequel to the first one it starts off as if the first one didn't exist the whole movie is one incoherent mess it was billed as being a scary movie but my friend and i merely laughed at the absurdity of it all Granted, in most horror movies, characters do stupid things, but in this movie, they do things that completely defy logic and reason. I could sort of be forgiving if these actions furthered the movie in some way, but since there is nothing resembling a plot, all they do is make things even more coherent and stupid. I'm going to think that they meant incoherent and stupid. This person's not smart, so just keep going. All of this is in lowercase <laughs> and like run-on sentences. So also, if it sounds like my reading is uh, troubled, that's why. It's their uh, fault. 
The effects were abysmal. Troubled. I like I like the word troubled. <laughs> the effects were abysmal, even laughable. It looked like they spent five dollars on the whole movie. The first one was good, even scary at times, but the same cannot be said of this bomb. Only rivaled in awfulness by the gate. Pure and utter garbage. Avoid, avoid, avoid. So this person, first of all, did not understand that this was supposed to be funny. Yeah, they were bothered by that. They're um, like, you guys are stupid. It's funny. And you yeah, don't mean to be. I just keep laughing at it. Like, yeah, that then you that then it worked. That's what they were going for. Yeah. Also, to be fair, that's the point. But I think that we should start a thing on this show where every time someone says in their review, this is the worst movie ever made. We do like the it's like the it's like the secret word on Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> I agree. One day we need it, like a newsletter it, of the worst movies ever made because it happens at least once on every episode when you're reading these. At least one person calls it the worst movie ever made, and it, it's never the worst movie ever made. No, I mean, I don't think we've covered the worst movie ever made. No, no, not know yet. What that is yet, but oh, it's Prometheus. Shut your mouth. <laughs> and in, a, in a world where bird gimmick exists. <laughs> oh man, no, it is not. Prometheus is not great, but uh, yeah, it is at least Just competently competently made. All right. We're talking about <laughs> Sam Raimi and Evil Dead right now. Uh Evil Dead 2. Uh well, this is great. You can I can already guess what why I picked this review. This is from Chuck Norris Facts 26, and that's not why, although that's a good one. <laughs> But the title of their review is Evil Dud 2. Ah, that's good. Uh, okay. I always love those pud titles. <laughs> why, oh, why was this movie even made? As if the first Evil Dead movie wasn't bad enough, which it was, they, in parentheses, the filmmakers, decided to make a sequel. Actually, <laughs> Todd, you're laughing, but I mean, they could have, the they pronouns like could have been the gods. I yeah, know. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, we, no, we could just, yeah. Who, yeah. who would we assume we're, we're making a movie? <laughs> Actually, it's not even really fair to call it a sequel. It's more of a remake of the first than a sequel. I've heard this film described as a horror comedy, although I think if you find any humor in this movie, I'm willing to bet you must be under the age of 10. <laughs> it's truly an insult to the intelligence of any person with half a brain and a total waste of life to watch. I just can't believe this film has the following it does. It's quite remarkable, in my opinion. I think Sam Raimi should have stuck to making his Super 8 shorts in his backyard instead of directing Hollywood features. This guy's a hack. Sorry, folks. It's true. I wouldn't even recommend watching it on television for free. It'd still be a waste of time. (laughs) All right. This was just fun. Uh, This is from 50K for a Verse. And this was written literally in August of this year. Gave it half a star on Letterboxd. Said, catch me saying Evil Dead is trash to get all these horror bitches in my DMs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a uh, quite the plan. (laughs) Good luck with that, buddy. (laughs) Two Sits Plus says, half star, I'm at a complete loss. There seems to be such a cult of adoration around this film. People are passionate, almost evangelical, about how much they love this movie and how great they think it is. 
while I would never tell someone what they can or cannot like, it's very obvious after watching this, that this movie is objectively awful and poorly made. I mean, you could still like it, but it is impossible to find artistic merit or actual value in it. This movie has horrific effects. There are sequences of the film that are sped up to cartoonish speeds. Editing is haphazard and without sense or rationale. There are sequences that have sound effects that do not match what is happening on the screen. And sometimes there is dubbing of voices while the actors' mouths don't move. Speaking of actors, the actor in this film, the acting in this film is abysmal, absolutely embarrassing. It would be comical how poorly the actors behave on screen if it weren't so grotesque and shameful. Bruce Campbell is a horrific performer, lacks all charisma and personality, and how he managed to eke out a career from appearing in these movies. There is a hipster try-hard component to those who profess to love this film. It's not scary, it's not funny, it's not good. It's value and taste. I simply do not get it at all. I question what it is about it that anyone could possibly find that amuses them, let alone drives them to the extreme passionate raves I've seen over the years. That person sounds like they'd be a blast at parties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I mean, I checked, I'll be honest, I checked out once they said that Bruce Campbell has, is not charismatic and doesn't How? have a personality. How do you do that? Like, I, do you do that? Say, that, say that Bruce Campbell doesn't have a lot of range. I'm not going to argue that. I've never seen Bruce Campbell do like a heavy dramatic scene. Maybe he has. I don't know. But in the stuff I've seen, that's not what he's known for. It's fine. Uh, that's not what every actor is known for. But to say that he doesn't have charisma or personality. I have one more. And, and I, only, I only saved this one for last just because it says it's from John Maserat Reviews. And uh, so this person attached their name to it. They like went with it. They put their name on it. It's on IMDb. Johnny Maserat 12. Uh, but M-O-N-S-A-R-R-A-T. I don't know if they have a channel that they go by or a blog that they use or whatever, but they went for it. So I'm going to give them credit. <laughs> the, only, the only question is, is it British accent or regular, I guess? So I think um, a good... A good New York accent. <laughs> All right. You can bring can back the that. Dino De Laurentiis accent. No, let's not, I, no, I like that, that one. That would be hard. <laughs> I'll try to go. Let's not. Uh, a sub-intellectual. Repetitively boring. Oh, we're doing Christopher Awful. Walken. <laughs> I no, we're doing? To, but I guess, <laughs> we're just going to go with whatever happens right okay. now. I'm, I'm, yeah, we're, I'm on this ride. I'm ready. <laughs> Let me admit from the start that I'm not a horror film guy, Okay. I saw the original Friday the 13th. I liked The Shining, Halloween 3, Carrie, etc. I have a certain aesthetic appreciation. I just don't like to be scared half to death. I have enough stress and nightmares from my normal life. Thank you very much. But a friend told me to try out Evil Dead 2. It's sort of a spoof. And sure enough, it wasn't very scary. But it sure was bad. Evil Dead 2 is a parody of horror films, but it comes out juvenile, lacking in every area, even worse than Spaceballs. A parody needs to have a real plot, interesting characters, rather than just 
imitate in random sequences the films it's trying to parody. Evil Dead 2 is a sequence of incredibly over-the-top gore and blood, and I found it to be as mindless and uninteresting as Dumb and Dumber, but worse. There wasn't a clever pun or a clever twist that subtly pokes fun at the horror film industry in the entire movie. To add to it all, the low-budget effects, acting, really everything. I like plenty of cult films, Buckaroo Banzai, Last Action Hero, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, The Blues Brothers, because I realized that that can sometimes be good. If it's campy and kind of fun, it doesn't take itself too seriously. This movie misses the mark in every way possible, okay? Who should see this film? Nobody. See Scary Movie instead. I'll give <laughs> Evil Dead 2 a stunningly brain dead, one out of ten, and honor I reserve for very few films. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew Dice Clay. I was uh, gonna say, was it was it uh it's it started Chris Walken and drifted to Tony Soprano a little bit. I got bit. a lot of I got a lot of Andrew Hickory, Dice Clay. Dickory, 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 so bitch was sucking my cock. The clock struck two, I spit my goo and I dropped her off in the next block. Oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. Am I not? I don't, I don't know. think you're allowed to say anything Andrew Dice Clay has ever said. <laughs> <laughs> this entire career. I don't know, dude. I was in middle school when Andrew Dice Clay came out, and you know, so that was it was floating around. It was funny, and we just thought <laughs> this is edgy. This is, I mean, it was for the time. I guess. <laughs> anyway, that's that's it. That's uh, that's our somebody needs a nap for the week, right? So yeah, uh, I disagree with all of those people. <laughs> Uh, every one of them uh evil dead 2 is uh, we mentioned this at the top of the show uh kind of but I, I think this is the ultimate sam raimi movie uh it is the distillation of everything that a sam raimi movie can be you know it's got that inventive camera work that he's known for the over-the-top gore effects the three stooges inspired comedy those are the things that you think about it, it, to me, that's that, that's what you think about when somebody mentions Sam Raimi or Sam Raimi as a director. Uh, and that's, I, I think Evil Dead 2 is really the first movie that we've covered so far that really gives us like all of these things, you know, all at once. It, it's it's everything that he loves all in, all in one. Yeah, it's really starting to congeal here. Yeah. And horror comedies are tough. Uh, and there are only a few great ones. I mean, you've Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, An American Werewolf in London, Shaun of the Dead, to name a few. Uh, but even some of the greats, including some of the ones I just mentioned, tend to lean one way or the other, either kind of becoming like a horror movie with comedy elements or a comedy movie with horror elements. Uh, but I think finding a, a balance is tough. Um, I, I think Shaun of the Dead, I mentioned, I think Shaun of the Dead is one that, that does both very well. Oh, yeah. But I think even tougher is combining horror with not just comedy but with slapstick comedy uh that's tough i mean that's that's a feat that honestly nobody but probably sam raimi has ever really pulled off at least to this level uh, of quality yeah i think so because i mean there's a there's a level of uh intellectual uh, it it's I, I guess maybe because it's British, it, it comes off a, a lot easier. The the headiness of the comedy. Talking about Shaun of the Dead, or yeah, with Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, uh, but yeah, slapstick and horror—that's tough. It's tough. That, that's uh, tough. 
I mean, this is basically a, a, a goofy three Stooges movie combined with extreme gore and horror. Yeah. That's that's not an easy thing to do. And like like the scene where Ash fights his own hand that we talked about, mm. that's basically Bruce Campbell playing the role of Mo, Larry, and Curly all at once as both the giver and receiver of the torment, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think what Raimi does here is kind of brilliant as far as the the building of a horror comedy you know he, he sets up shots and sequences that are meant to convey horror the kind of stuff you see in a lot of horror movies but then he kind of takes them in a different direction often ending on a joke so mm-hmm. like for instance um the scene where ash is running from the force and he runs into the cabin you know and, the, and it's chasing him through the cabin where he's going through all these rooms it's kind of a almost becomes like a labyrinth where yeah. he's running from the force and you're seeing it from the forces uh pov Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and ash eventually you know normally that's a scene that would end like that, that's a horror chase sequence it's going to end with somebody getting killed or somebody getting hurt uh it's going to end not the way that it ends here which is where ash actually outwits the force yeah. and the force backs up <laughs> like backing up uh and <laughs> it just gives up because it got lost in the house you can almost you can almost <laughs> hear the you can almost hear the force go Aww. yeah like imagine a jason movie like jason's chasing somebody through the cabin and he can't find them and he just gets frustrated it's like oh god uh, yeah. let's just get out of here i'll try again later <laughs> you know, that's funny you don't see that in horror yeah. movies and it's what makes it funny because it's the setup is all horror mm-hmm. then there's a punchline yeah you know in addition to it it's great um but I, I do think that this is also evil dead 2 is also the rare sequel that lives up to or surpasses the original. Uh, mm. in, in fact, if hard pressed, I I would call Evil Dead to my favorite of the Evil Dead series. Uh, and if we're being really honest, it probably my favorite Sam Raimi movie. Period. Oh wow! So, what do you guys think? Is you know, let's like we won't get into Army of Darkness too much yet. But between Evil Dead one and two, do you guys have a oh, preference? Man. <laughs> like if hard pressed and you had to i mean granted you know we talked about evil dead for three hours i i adore evil dead uh but if i had to pick i'm gonna say evil dead too i just like that comedy horror blend especially this splat stick style mm. uh i think is really cool and really you know like i said the ultimate sam raimi movie i i i'm gonna have to go with you on that yeah. because i don't i i just you know, like there's things you can look for in Evil Dead that you're like, these are signs of a promising filmmaker, a promising artist and that sort of thing that like you you see and you're like, man, this guy had like a really low budget and he did a lot uh, mm-hmm. and a lot more mm-hmm. than I don't know. I've been watching some YouTube shorts and stuff like that that I'm like, man, a guy there, there's a thing where like a guy like Sam Raimi walks in the room and he does something different and it's it's impressive, but at the same time, does Evil Dead like necessarily break through as one of the greatest horror films of all time? I don't, I don't, I don't know that it does like on its own. But when you get to Evil Dead Two and it's this distinct voice that mm-hmm. is Sam Raimi, yeah. Now you're talking about something totally different. Now you're well, talking- you can see that voice on Evil Dead One, but now he has the resources to really like do it. You know? Oh yeah, no, but he goes for it. There's the the outlandish way that he handles things and evil dead 2 is just it's so much more there's some creepy stuff in evil dead like the original sure but i don't know i don't even think that's a slide against anybody i think any one of those guys would tell you 100 percent evil dead 2 is more 
to their sensibilities than what Evil Dead One was. Like, yeah. it, you know, Evil Dead Two was exactly. They were like, okay, we had to make a horror movie, and we did it. But we did it on our terms. Yeah, mm-hmm. we wanted to make mm-hmm. a comedy, and now we got to put them together. And now Sam Raimi is like. I mean, you don't need any other argument than the fact that Doctor Strange, the multiverse of madness, just uh, opened up her MCU and like made millions of dollars and all that other shit. And it's like, <laughs> obviously, this formula works and it mm-hmm. caught on enough that he got there. Like it just I mean, this was a this was a unique thing for him. Yeah. Yeah. I this, I'm the whole time you guys have been talking like. Which one do I prefer? I don't know <laughs> because they, I feel like they watch so differently. Like it, if you're, if you're in a, a goofy mood, you can watch evil dead too. Mm-hmm. If you're down for something a little more um, indie feeling a little, that leans a little bit more on like the traditional scares and stuff like that. I think you can go with the, with evil dead one, uh, but man, if I, if I had to pick one, I, I feel like, Oh man. See, part of me wants to go with the original because I, I, I do sort of appreciate that DIY, you know, here's, here's the first effort and it, yeah. and it really does, it really stands up and really, and it stands up and holds up. Um, and I mean, it influenced so many people. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be the detractor. I'll, I'll say Evil Dead One. Just yeah, there's just, no, there's just no wrong answer. <laughs> it, it, yeah, if we if we were also talking about Army of Darkness, then I would go ahead and say Army of Darkness, just because those watch completely as one as one thing. Yeah, but if, I, but if I'm putting the first two against each other, I, I think I'll go with the first one. Well, I mean, you I do lo- make an interesting point. I mean, if you're talking about a standalone movie, I guess Evil yeah. Dead like really works as a standalone movie um, more than Evil Dead Two, maybe just because of that I don't know. You got the ending. whole recap, but yeah, yeah. Well, ending- well, and I'm thinking the ending where he well, gets, the ending like, is more of just warped. like a tease, you know? Mm. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It's 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 weird because. There, there's no denying the importance of Evil Dead. It made the guy's career. It is yeah. important. Like it is, yeah. it is, it's a legitimately good horror movie. And from a guy who had no other resources than his own ingenuity and his own go get them attitude, that mm-hmm. he like made it happen. Uh, even on the um, on the uh, DVDs, there's a there's a special feature where they go revisit the locations for evil dead Two, and uh the guy that's there and i apologize i can't remember his name right off the top of my head but they they go there with him and um it is uh tony elwood there it is uh he he's been with them since evil dead one he's like one of their buddies but um you know he goes and revisits the locations with whoever made this documentary some nerds like us and uh <laughs> But he talks about in there that he was just like, Sam was just a different dude. Like Sam was gung ho all the time. Like Sam, you know, like, I'd be like, I wish I could make movies. And Sam's like, man, you got a super eight. Let's, let's go make a movie. And like, well, when, well, like we're not doing anything Sunday. Let's go make one Sunday. And he's like, Sam, that's the, that's our off day from like work and everything. That's when we chill. (laughs) He's like, but Sam was like, yeah, that's when you make the movie. (laughs) And like, let's, let's go make movies. And he's like, there was just like a thing that like Sam was just always like on and just like, yeah. hey, 
you got free time right now. You got all the stuff you need. Go make a movie. So, yeah. so you, anyway, you hear stories like that about a guy, and you know that's why Evil Dead exists because yeah. of a guy with that kind of ambition and that sure kind will of drive power of will and ambition and talent. Yeah, right. And then, but it is also like there, there's Evil Dead too, which is like Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, the name that is arguably a household name now uh is uh you know it's because of evil dead 2 evil dead 2 made bruce campbell bruce campbell and right. uh it mm. you know it made ash yeah it spawned multiple sequels the tv we, we wouldn't be seeing him. a bunch of ash like t-shirts and necronomicon shirts and things like that like i could go buy a necronomicon book of the dead pillow for my couch as a throw pillow if i want to right now and you're not seeing all that because of <laughs> evil dead one you're seeing it because of evil dead two not yeah. only that but like literally as we're recording this like like literally last week on Fortnite, which is like another huge thing to like talk about the next generation a generation or two past us Fortnite, this game that's like this mmorpg that's like huge right now they just unleashed the evil dead pack oh did they yeah (laughs) literally last week like you can go look it up it's like they they have like one of the settings is the cabin and ash is a playable character (laughs) and it's like it's a huge thing like it's uh bruce campbell's retweeting it all the stuff right now and it's just like it's it's hitting beyond us now yeah yeah that, to the, that to the, bruce to the youth <laughs> yeah to the, the youth the the with his chainsaw arm and his shotguns well i mean if we're talking about you know stuff like that i didn't mention this when we talked about the first evil dead because i felt like it fit a little bit more with evil dead 2 because it's a little more inspired by evil dead 2 but in 2003 the evil dead evil dead the musical debuted yes and it was it was uh, I think it debuted in Toronto, moved off Broadway, uh, and now it tours all over. Uh, I, have you guys seen it? Yeah, I've got it. I, on, I I've got it on DVD. <laughs> did you see it when it came to the warehouse? I went to the warehouse. Yeah, yeah, I did too, and it was incredible. Just a just a blast. But it's very much a horror comedy. It's very splatstick. It is very much inspired by Part Two more than Part One, uh, I think, and it is just. A blast, and the fact that this horror movie that is still a fairly low budget horror movie at three and a half million in, in 1986 um, could spawn a musical, an off Broadway musical, like yeah. that's insane, <laughs> and I love it so much, uh, and and uh, it just tells you how much influence, and not just among like horror movie nerds, but just mainstream influence, the Evil Dead has really had. Yeah. Well, it's always crazy to me because like uh not to dwell on this point too much, but like it was just it, it just got released in Fortnite. Like that's crazy to me because like I remember when I was growing up, I always loved Halloween because that was like my favorite movie. And now I love the fact that like Michael Myers is the serial killer that persists over Jason and Freddie because like during the 80s and early 90s and everything, Freddie and Jason were bigger and it yeah. was like Michael Myers is Oh, I don't know. Well, to and, be fair, the movies he was putting out during that time were not great. It's true. <laughs> let's not let's not uh, let's my point here. Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that it's cool to see Michael Myers reign supreme. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. depending on how you felt about Halloween ends, but I'm saying like that that he's the one still consistently like in pop culture, yeah. right now. Yeah. 
uh, as opposed to everybody else. Yeah. And, uh, and then you can look at Bruce Campbell and Ash and evil dead. And they're like, dude, they're, they're still making shit with yeah. Ash. This I mean, Ash with the chainsaw hand. Yeah. <laughs> like the they've already head. made, you know, a TV show and they've already made, well, now they're making a fourth movie, which I don't think Bruce Campbell is going to be in, but uh, still, yeah, you, I mean, I, I, I see your point. And, you know, I love Army of Darkness, which we'll, we will talk about in full a couple episodes down the line. Uh, and I've already sung the praises of the first Evil Dead. But I think Evil Dead 2 really encompasses what fans of the series love most about this series of films. It's got these incredible special effects, grotesque but hilarious set pieces, mm-hmm. uh, and Bruce Campbell at the center of it all, hamming it up like nobody else can. Yeah. And I mean, we could list out all the things that make Evil Dead 2 great, but I think that at the top of that list is Bruce Campbell. Because as good as Sam Raimi's direction is on this, it would not matter without somebody as as great as Bruce Campbell and as fully 200% committed to the role as Bruce Campbell is in this. Or, Or I should, I guess I should say, 90 minutes of Bruce Campbell just being tormented by evil forces. And Bruce Campbell being totally game for it. Like he is, you know, getting the shit beat out of him and he is just down for whatever needs to be done to make this a great movie. Uh, I I think it's one of the great physical comedy performances of all time. And it is honestly kind of a shame that this didn't translate to more mainstream success for Campbell. Yeah. He's had a very successful career, but even like, you know, we've referenced his, his autobiography several times. It's, if Chins Could Kill, Confessions of a B-Movie Actor. He's kind of always gotten stuck in B-movies. I mean, yes, he, he did uh, some TV, Briscoe County Jr. He did, uh, what was it, White Collar was a show he was on on USA for years. Yeah. Uh, the one yeah. White Collar. Uh, so he's obviously you know been very successful in that way, but he's never had been like a movie star. And look at him in this movie. He looks like a fucking movie star. Yeah, he he's got that chiseled like jawbone. Uh, he's very handsome. He's, he's very like athletic. And he, that physical comedy performance is just unreal. Yeah, yeah. Just unreal. I, yeah I, I would say I would say I get your point, but also part of Bruce Campbell's legacy is being Bruce Campbell, and sure. like yeah. being the guy that he is right now. Yeah. And none of that could have happened without all of this. And and this day and age, like what is a B movie star? Like what is, you know, like, I mean, they're Netflix. If your shit's well, now, now, but not during when he was coming up, but I'm saying like now I feel like he's as famous as anybody almost. Like, I feel like he's, I mean, obviously he's not as famous as like Harry Styles or something. I'm not trying to say no, nobody is, but but (laughs) I'm saying like Bruce Campbell's a pretty fucking famous name. Like, I feel like he's, he's, he's doing okay. And I, and I can't imagine that he sits around wishing that his career had gone the way of Brad Pitt or something. Right. I no, I mean, I'm not saying that. I just, I would like to have been able to see him more in bigger movies. Like somebody that I like as much as I like Bruce Campbell, I would love this be see like, Oh, Bruce Campbell just made $10 million making this movie, you know, like that would be good to see. Yeah. It would be <laughs> nice, but, but, Who's probably more popular on a convention sir, uh, circuit than Bruce Campbell? Like yeah. Bruce Campbell probably, to, you know, he 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 commands his rate anywhere yeah. he appears. And that's true. I I, yeah. I assume you know, but like 
I bet I bet the dude's happy. I bet the dude's okay. Oh yeah, he's he's had yeah. a good career and a good life, and he's up living in the Pacific Northwest somewhere, I think, in Oregon, and just you know making movies and TV shows now and then. He's ordained. Uh, I think he's at a wedding. Oh so, yeah. Well, if I yeah. ever get married again. <laughs> yeah, he says it's a one shot, but we'll we'll see. Um, don't don't divorce your wife, Justin. What are you doing? No, I'm not. I'm just saying if we like renew our vows, I'm not. <laughs> i was gonna um, say you're not planning to kill her are you <laughs> uh, let's see what else do we have to run through for the evil dead i think another thing that Raimi does really well with this movie is the way that he uh he kind of plays up the film's humor with the special effects you know because the uh the film the, the makeup in the first film is a little more grotesque uh, partially because of the budget and partially just because of the design, but here they're a lot more cartoonish, you know, uh, the stuff that Mark Showstrom's doing the evil Ash, the stop motion Henrietta, the, this like snake neck thing mm-hmm. comes up at the end. Yeah. Even yeah. the, uh, apple head, the apple head demon thing. It's all very like cartoonish, but still manages to be grotesque, especially, especially Henrietta who yeah. manages to be funny and super gross at the same time. Uh, and, it's also, uh, you know, uh, one. I think one scene that really uses that aspect very well is uh, the eyeball flyball scene. You know, mm. they, that the Gary has mentioned a couple of times. Uh, that is another example, I think, of Raimi using horror expectations for a laugh. So here in, in this scene, if you remember, you've seen the movie, Ash stomps on Henrietta's head and her eyeball pops out and goes flying across the room. Now, that in a normal horror movie... That's going to be enough for most viewers. He stomps on the head of this demon. Her eyeball pops out. It's super gross. We get a good gore shot. That's done. But Raimi keeps keeps it going. Uh, and he takes it further by having the eyeball not just pop out, but fly across the room. And he tracks it like with the camera. It's really it's a really great shot. Uh, and it goes straight into Bobby Joe's mouth. And that's your punchline. <laughs> you know, like most, most horror directors would have stopped with the eyeball just popping out and being gross. Raimi turns it into a joke. He does that yep. every single time. And she I think talks about a lot of her best acting was uh, in reverse. Yeah, yeah, that's a reverse <laughs> that's a reverse shot of it landing in her mouth. The, the shot of it flying across the room, it was on a wire, but they just use a very narrow depth of field when they shot it. Yeah. So that the wire is, it's actually on screen, but it's so out of focus that you can't see it. Yeah. It's, it's really clever. But I think that approach, that using horror tropes, but ending in a punchline, I think that's one thing that makes this a very unique horror comedy, not a lot of horror movies, not a lot of horror comedies can claim that uh, Shaun of the dead is one of the few that I can think of that does kind of the same thing. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes evil dead Two stand out from the crowd and what makes it such an enduring and popular film, you know, 35 years later. Well, I don't know that he was going for this, but like, I happen to love uh uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah, oh, I do too. Adore that movie. That fucking movie is phenomenal. It's and, so good. Uh, <laughs> you know, Sam Raimi grew up watching Abbott and Costello. You know that that's you know watching all those old movies like we talked about on TV. Yeah, mm. uh, Abbott and Costello was part of that repertoire. And uh, and I just wonder. I don't know how much he was thinking of that, or how much was it that he's like, I'm gonna still get my three stooges shit in or uh like it's it was like necessity that this has to be in or it was just like whatever i'm throwing everything at the wall right now let's see what sticks or whatever but 
I feel like he he like nailed that same thing like in that era. Like he yeah. he's he's right up there with with all of that. Like you would uh you know if we were doing a further viewing at it this is not on my list but Abbott Costello be Frankenstein which it should be but it's you know that th- that's like a movie that is doing or a Shaun of the Dead or something like that like it's these people that take they love horror movies mm-hmm. but it's weird with Sam Raimi because he he wasn't like a horror movie guy yeah he right. wasn't a horror movie guy he was kind of forced into it but he also and- understands filmmaking and he understands what works and he understands how horror works just by studying it and that tells you a lot about sam raimi as a person and as an artist i think because he's able to like absorb that remember when they were planning to make evil dead they went and just watched a bunch of movies at the local like drive-in a bunch of horror movies and they'd absorb what worked and what didn't and he used that to his advantage yeah and and i would still say even to this day like he has a very distinct way of doing it like yeah you could watch evil dead 2 and then drag me to hell and like say that's sam raimi but you couldn't compare those movies to like many other movies and be Mm -hmm. you know like you know like be confused about who it was you would know sam raimi if you saw sam raimi his his style is so distinct that like nobody else can really do it without feeling like they're just ripping off sam raimi right even in raising arizona a a movie that i i is one of my favorite movies of all time there is that shaky cam that shot that is basically the force shot from evil dead which they got the idea from sam raimi their friend but it is it feels very much like oh this was like sam raimi shot this scene it doesn't feel like the coen brothers shot it it feels like a sam raimi movie Uh, and anyone else who tries to do a sam raimi shot like that just feels like they're riffing on sam raimi instead of doing something unique which speaks to how unique his style really is yeah there's something wild about like i I mean this doesn't even have to be the one that we rail on this on but if you if you talk about dr strange of the multiverse of madness like there's something about when he shows up with all the dead people on his back like and he's floating i don't know something about that i was just like that's him Ravi. Oh yeah, like, that, that's just it, it is it just un- felt unmistakable. Sam Raimi, unmistakable. Well, Gary, since you mentioned further viewing, let's get into our further viewing segment. What would you know? You said Abin Costello wasn't on your list, but tell me what is on your list. Well, I think an easy one uh, for me right off the bat that I thought of was Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I thought that would be a fun yeah. one. Cabin in the Woods movie, it's yeah, comedy horror, Great. dark Great cabin. Yeah. Uh, but also, I would say uh, I didn't think about this until I was watching some of the uh, commentary, and they mentioned that Evil Ed. Part of the design for that was Sam had an idea because he was uh, for the Big Mouth. He was watching Fright Night, and um, and then, also like, has a character named Evil Ed. Yeah, that also has an Evil Ed, <laughs> but uh, but also the poster had that like like the just Big that, Mouth, the, the big vampire mouth with the Big Mouth, yeah. Yeah, so he, when he described it to the effects guys, like he he used that as a reference. And, yeah, and, uh, and I would say Fright Night also. I wouldn't quite call it a horror comedy, but I would call it a horror with some comedy moments in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess those would be my two picks. I would go yep. uh, Tucker and Dale and Fright Night. Cool. How about you, Todd? Uh, you know, just looking at. Um the concept the initial thing of evil dead 2 of like ash goes back to the cabin uh i was just kind of like that's ridiculous so what what other uh what other one just makes you go what why (laughs) and i came i i was just like 
it's fish in a barrel. It's Jason X. It's Jason, Jason X. It's Jason in a barrel. It's Jason, Jason in space. What? Why? Well, nobody's, I mean, nobody's ever said that. I would like say that, a, like it's like fish in a barrel. Jason X. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I mean, I would say that like Evil Dead is going back to the same place. Evil Dead 2 is going better at the same place as the first one, whereas Jason X is taking it as far from Camp Crystal Lake as you could possibly go. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, like in terms of from a character perspective and from there know, are no de- real characters in Jason X. Right, right. It's just <laughs> kind of like it's again from that initial concept, that initial elevator pitch. If, if you look at those elevator pitches side by side, you have the same response for both. I'll, I'll give you that. If you want to just like sit back, have some beer, and watch some oh, dark I'm not horror, it, I'm not saying it's not fun. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Like, I can well, watch I, I Jason just think X that, and like, Evil Dead too, and have like guttural laughs that, like, Jesus. I think what if is you're watching both of those, right you're having a good night. But I don't know that they they're complimentary in any way. <laughs> you know, I don't think that they, I don't think they complement each other in any way other than they're both <laughs> horror movies. So it's like, that's a weird double feature to me. Uh, even though, I mean, you could watch them back to back and it would be one fun movie and another fun movie, but as a double feature, they're not really. Yeah. And that, yeah. and that's what, and that's what I'm going for. Cause I was I just kind of like, okay, I, I what, like what if we really... went to the radio room, we were doing the double feature. Like you start off with evil dead too. And then people are like, they ease into like the, absurdity of it all i give them like jason x is the next what are they're like i don't even fucking care anymore like, i don't know <laughs> i don't know i'm not i'm not sold on that so I, here here's let me go in my direction then yeah uh so we're doing a, a a double feature night uh two movies came to mind when i thought about this the first one is a movie that we've actually already covered on the podcast and that's toby hooper's texas chainsaw massacre 2 a movie that like evil dead 2 takes its subject in a completely different direction tonally uh going from an original entry that's pretty straightforward pretty intense horror into a sequel that definitely leans more heavily on the laughs Mm. uh a very unexpected direction for the uninitiated like if you've only if you let's say you didn't know evil dead 2 existed you saw evil dead 1 you found out there's a sequel then you watch this you're like oh that's a bit of a swerve same thing with texas chainsaw versus texas chainsaw 2 so that's the first one i thought of but if i were to pick one movie uh because if you're doing a double feature you've you've got evil dead you've only got one other movie to pick so if you're picking just one it'd be a movie that, that i think was very heavily inspired by evil dead 2 and it was, I already it, know what you're going to say. It was released about five years later, 1992, and that is Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Necro. Uh, AKA, wait, what? <laughs> what were you going to say? Necromantic? <laughs> was yeah, like, I was going to say necromantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, a.k.a. <laughs> Brain Dead. Uh, it is, uh, other than this movie, uh, it is, I think Brain Dead and Evil Dead 2 are both like if there was a Mount Rushmore of horror comedies. Mm. this is th- those are both on there and dead alive does a splat stick thing that i think sam raimi does so well but peter jackson imbues his own personal style on it just like sam raimi does here it's an it's a style inspired by sam raimi but it's still very distinct to peter jackson i think and it also if evil dead 2 has a lot of blood in it dead alive brain dead surpasses it Oh, yeah. it, it, is the, it is a, it is the bloodiest movie you'll ever watch uh and <laughs> in a very unrealistic way it's got great 
uh, practical effects. It's got some great puppetry, like the 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 mom at the end of Brain Dead very much reminds me of Henrietta. Um, I think they would make a great double feature, and that would be like a Friday night with a beer and a pizza. Evil Dead Two and Brain Dead. That's a perfect evening to me. It'd take more than That's, one beer, but I'm in. Well, you know, <laughs> a beer, a, a six pack of beer. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And oddly enough, uh, on the trailers at the beginning of all these groovy collection DVDs, Brain Dead's there. So yeah, which you know, the sucky thing about that is that Brain Dead is very hard to find. Uh, because I've been wanting to do a Peter Jackson series on this podcast since we started it. And his early <laughs> movies, I mean, I want to do his early movies, everything before he started working on Lord of the Rings. I felt bad taste when I worked at a video store in high school. So yeah, like, I mean, I've got bad taste on DVD, but I want our viewers to be able to watch it. And Brain Dead, mm-hmm. I've got on DVD, but it has never been released on Blu-ray, not in the States. And I want our viewers to be able to stream it, and it's not streaming anywhere. That's and one day, stupid. hopefully, he, he keep, he's been saying for five years that he's working on 4K restorations of Meet the Feebles, Bad Taste, and Brain Dead, but it, he's yet to do anything with them. Uh, or finish them i don't know uh, but one day when they do we will do a peter jackson series and uh, the early films of peter jackson like everything up to the frighteners you know uh nice pre well, before before the shire before middle earth peter jackson because mm. uh, i love them but yes he's very very inspired by sam raimi i think well we're talking about sam raimi and i've got a bunch of special features that i didn't slip into everything else so we we got to talk about all the rest is there something else we need to cover to make this narrative work for sam raimi no i'm ready to go into wrap up whenever all right so so say what you need to say all right so uh point number one uh kathy bates was his side chick and he uh regularly visits her and has sex no i'm just kidding (laughs) gary's just slandering (laughs) sam raimi (laughs) um no 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 what a a couple of things i did want to mention about him uh the we we got through the whole evil dead the first two it didn't mention wes craven at all i don't feel like i don't i don't why would we have mentioned wes craven well, I'll tell you why. Because uh, <laughs> in the beginning, in Evil Dead, there was a poster for uh, the Hills Have Eyes. Hills Have Eyes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're and right. The reason that that was there is because in the Hills Have Eyes, there was a poster for Jaws, and uh, Sam. In Ray- Jaws, there was a poster for Psycho, and in Psycho, there was a poster for the Wolfman. Was that true? No, I made all of that up. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, Whoa. this goes deeper than I thought. <laughs> Sam Raimi says he took he took that point of like Wes Craven saying and like the hills have eyes that like the Jaws poster was there that he's like, well, these monsters are the fake monsters. These are the real monsters. Mm. And so in the Evil Dead, they put the poster for the hills have eyes and they're like mm-hmm. this. And then all of a sudden, Wes Craven in uh a nightmare on Elm Street has Johnny Depp watching Evil Dead. Evil Dead. Yep. I just watched <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. And I, uh, like right yeah. after we did our Evil Dead episode. So then in Evil Dead 2, Freddy's glove is hanging in the in the shed. Yeah, uh, woodshed. In the woodshed, <laughs> which is gonna be another story. Hold on. Uh so so it's hanging in the shed. And uh anyway. So that's why they were doing that. It was a little fun back and forth with Wes Craven. I thought I that love was that. kind of cool. That's good. Nice. And uh, just some appreciation. 
uh the other thing let's see what else was i gonna go for uh the i feel like you said so many things and i lost my train of thought but it doesn't matter anyway let's talk about the uh the woodshed there is the scene where bruce campbell says woodshed woodshed Woodshed. and it's like dubbed really weird clearly dubbed clearly Clearly adr yeah he says his mouth's not moving Todd looks confused, but there is a seed. No, like, no, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So uh, Bruce Campbell tells a story that he went on escape from LA and uh, with John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, and he was nervous about meeting Kurt Russell. And since day one, Kurt Russell walked up to him and says, he was just like, oh, hey, uh, Kurt, my name is uh, Bruce. And he's just like, hey, Bruce, say woodshed. <laughs> he's like what <laughs> and he's like my son Wyatt loves your shit say woodshed <laughs> he's just like he saw Evil Dead and he loved that you gotta do that <laughs> do you know why they had to dub it no was it just I, I mean I don't know I, oh I, no yeah. I think it was just like one of those things like he says he says in the commentary he's like I said it right and he's like, and then they dubbed it and then they put the dub in wrong or something. Uh, <laughs> and then it was just like, it's just one of those weird things. It's like it when the, the sound editing was just a bit off. Yeah. When you watch the commentaries, they'll point out to you. They're, they're not shy about pointing out to you when like, you know, the camera's chasing them through a room and they're like, oh, you see how you can see over the wall up there? That's because it's a set. And <laughs> you see those bushes outside of the porch? That's because that's the driveway coming up to the uh, gymnasium. <laughs> 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 so it's kind of interesting when you go through that. But yeah, he was he was just like, uh, yeah, he, I don't know. He, he just said it was, it was just a weird thing that happened. He's like, and Kurt Russell immediately ragged on me for it (laughs) (laughs) it's like the best (laughs) fan bullying ever (laughs) uh the only other person we didn't mention at all during this whole episode that i do want to make sure we mention is uh john casino who is bruce campbell's stunt guy Oh yeah, he didn't get a whole lot of work on this movie. I was gonna I think say, he... is he just hanging out at craft circle? <laughs> he didn't get much. Except he fell down the, the stairs. He, he got thrown <laughs> down the stairs. Like yeah. he, he said, Bruce just said he like amped himself up. Was like, I'm going. Just like threw himself down the like stairs, head first down the stairs. But yeah, other than that, like he probably just sat around while Bruce Campbell just beat himself up. Yeah, like <laughs> Sam wanted Bruce Campbell. So uh, that, that and Bruce he, Campbell wanted to do it. Oh, no, no, no. But Bruce Campbell also knew that, like, going down the stairs was probably a bad idea for an untrained uh, stunt person. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And and, and a lot of the stuff that you think would be the worst stuff, I don't think is the worst stuff. Like, I think that's probably general and stunt stuff. Yeah. Always. But, um, you know. Bruce did get punched in the face during the movie. Dan Hicks, when that scene where he's, like, knocking Ash out, he actually hit him. And like hard enough to where like Bruce's front teeth were loose. And he yeah, had to get him fixed. It loosened his front teeth. He <laughs> yeah. went like double fist like onto yeah. him. And like uh and then Dead Hicks got it when the uh, hand came up and grabbed him in the nose and like busted his nose, like yeah. <laughs> grabbing him in the face. But like people were people were on board for whatever, I guess. I guess you yeah. just went for it. Gotta but, get the movie made. Oh, there was one scene, by the way, 
that like in the commentary, they pointed out that like Bruce Campbell tries to drive towards the bridge and the bridge is out. And then he gets out and he turns around, he punches the car and then Sam Raimi's like, look at you. You're always trying to damage the car. <laughs> always, <laughs> the always trying to hurt the classic. You're always trying to hurt the classic. <laughs> and Bruce has a vendetta against that car. I don't know He's what like, happened. He, any chance he got, he would just I like think... try to kick her, hit the classic. <laughs> I, think, classic. I think Bruce Campbell had a girlfriend that maybe Sam Raimi stole and they banged in the back of that car. And Bruce Campbell's got a... <laughs> that's what people that's, wonder. That's, that's people a, wonder that's Bruce Gannon, Campbell absolutely. stole him. That's why, like, Cam, uh, Sam like beats the shit out of Bruce like <laughs> right. in all the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and Bruce just takes it though. That's the thing. It's like Bruce Bruce rolls with it. It's it's always oh that's that's what I was going to say is like it's never like the stuff you think it would be like when Bruce is like busting plates over his head or something. Mm-hmm. That's like from their super 8 days. That's like they get those like untreated like uh ceramic things and just like smash them over their heads they like break easily but it's just always like the like random weird crap that they do that like bruce will just go for that they decide i don't know we're gonna let some guy sit on you and punch you in the face (laughs) (laughs) so the evil dead 2 may not have been a box office smash but it remains one of if not the most popular films in the franchise uh and one of raimi's most popular i think Uh, But most importantly, it established Raimi in a way that none of his previous films had. After Evil Dead 2, Hollywood would uh, finally begin to take notice of Raimi, Tapert, and their inventive style of filmmaking. And for his next film, Raimi would take the tentative step towards mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. Well, he had... uh, He had some experience with the small studio Avco Embassy with Crime Wave. His follow-up to Evil Dead 2 would mark his first collaboration with a bona fide major Hollywood studio, in this case, Universal. Uh, We are talking, of course, about... I know you're excited for this, Todd. Yeah. Uh, We are talking next episode about Darkman. Yes! Darkman is the reason Todd wanted to do a Sam Raimi series. (laughs) Uh, Todd just ejaculated. He did. That's what the sound he makes. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I done it every time he comes. I done it. (laughs) I hate it. We are talking about Darkman next week, or uh, next episode, rather. Uh, You can find it streaming wherever you can find it streaming. And or by the Blu-ray or what uh, the Shout Factory Blu-ray is what I would highly recommend. It's uh, anything from Shout Factory is top notch. But they, yeah, they're Dark, really my favorite right now. I, they're they, awesome, man. Their 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 special features are so good, and mm-hmm. their presentation is so good. I I would highly recommend checking that out if you want a physical copy of Darkman. That is. So I'm thinking about making a little like store on on our uh, on our website where you can buy the, all the, the movies we talk about what do you guys think just a little like amazon associates kind of thing you know well because we also reference a lot of books it's true probably make Ooh. it a book books and dvd yeah maybe we'll do a little little cinema shock holiday gift guide this year Ooh, yeah. that'd be fun that'd anyway be fun. Yeah. that'd be fun it'd be a lot of work <laughs> uh, i got time sure <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing anything. Else. I'm not doing Come anything. Uh, well, anyway, that's for next time. Uh, that's it for Evil Dead 2. Where can you fellas be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horn on all the social medias. And uh, I'm actually going to, for the rest of the year, I mean, here we're recording this at the end of October, but because of 
uh, some things. Uh, I'm actually going to forego plugging my socials and my show uh, in exchange for talking about a friend of mine, Alyssa Fowler, who's actually raising money for her family for cancer treatments. Um, we are actually doing a benefit comedy show December 6th at Radio Room here in Greenville, but they have a, uh, a GoFundMe uh, just briefly. Um, her, hus- her husband died of cancer. Her cancer moved. Uh, it was gastric cancer. It has now moved to her brain and her daughter just got diagnosed with stage four. So that's a crummy hand to be dealt with. Um, and yeah, yeah so uh, they've got a GoFundMe right now. Uh, look for, uh, if you want to search at GoFundMe. We'll throw it in the in the show description. Yeah, and it's uh, cancer treatments for both my daughter and I. It's Alyssa, Fla- excuse me, Alyssa Fowler, uh, A-L-Y-S-S-A. F-O-W-L-E-R. It's they're great people. They're actually o- over a little halfway towards their goal, but I think their goal is probably a little on the conservative side considering yeah. what they're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, so anything you can do to uh to help this family, they are personal friends of uh, me and my wife, and uh they just really need your help right now. So go fund me, uh, check out the link in the show notes, and we'll also plug it on um my show and and everywhere else you can find stuff from us yeah and like i said it'll, we'll put it we'll put the link in the show notes and on our website uh under this episode so uh you'll you'll be able to find the link there and just click on it well i am at justin underscore bishop uh you can by the way still follow todd at mr todd a davis everywhere uh you can find me at uh on twitter and instagram and of course letterbox you can also find the website or so you can also find the podcast at cinemashock.net uh you can find links to all of our merch our discord all of our episodes etc there or uh find us at cinema underscore shock on twitter and instagram and facebook and all that stuff until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other hey what do you say we have some champagne huh baby after all I'm Johnny, and you're the keys. At least last time I checked. Wow, Johnny's going to fuck those keys. (laughs) (laughs) It's about time. beyond me there is a hipster try-hard component to those who profess to love <gasps> this film <laughs> damn it <laughs> sorry guys <Max>. <laughs> <laughs> try, that, try that again <laughs>